Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy coming last place. Last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. Pass by. I lay my money at a fast pace. Welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I am your host, Locke, and today I'm really excited to introduce our guest. We got best-selling author, CEO of Our Thing Apparel, host of Our Thing Detroit on 910 AM, the Superstation, and former Detroit mob associate, Gunnar Lindblom. Welcome to the show, Gunnar. Thanks for coming on. How you doing, man? You know, these introductions, they always make me sound bigger, like a big deal. Like, not really. But you forgot my YouTube channel, which is Gunner Detroit. That's ah, one of my favorite things to do, post, post shows there. So just saying. <laughs> hey, and it's uh, great content on the YouTube. It was getting wordy. You have so many stuff. I was like, okay, I want to try and hit the big ones. And I know those yeah, were the ones yeah. that you cover on your Instagram. But yeah, the YouTube is great. Uh, you do the lives on them too. So mm-hmm. um, I definitely recommend checking out the YouTube channel. And I appreciate you taking time to come on. I am a, a big fan. I've read, wow. I've read uh, both your books. So I really want to talk about the books and, you know, your road to becoming an author. But, you know, in order to get where we are now, we always kind of got to cover where Back we came from. Hmm. So you want to go ahead and touch on a little bit from us, your kind of history and as kind of a, you know, former Detroit mob associate and how you kind of got involved in that life. Sure, sure. So, I mean, it wasn't something, I mean, this is, it's, I guess it's germane to understand my backstory, to kind of understand my, how I became a writer and the success of the books. It's a very, very unique circumstances, um, which, and I'll, I'll kind of condense it the best I can, but essentially, I was born into a mafia family, and I knew it at a very young age just because everybody treated us differently, you know? Um, so there's a city called Gross Point, Michigan. It's a very wealthy and affluent area. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four and I went and lo- moved in with my grandparents, grandma, grandpa Toko, Peter, Paul Toko and Grace Toko with my mother and sister. So it just, you know, just fate would have it. That was ground zero for the mafia right there, that neighborhood. So essentially I'd say 70% of the mafia and then about, 95 percent of the administration of the mafia all lived within a like five block radius um and they all lived together in them five blocks for for decades you know and like right after they got off the boat you know or and they they moved there very young i mean they the families had been there since the 1920s and 30s and stuff and then uh my grandfather married my grandmother when he was when he got out of the army he, he bought her a big ring and asked her, he actually, that's a really funny love story. He met her on the boat on the way over from Sicily. She's a couple of years younger than him. He fell in love with her. He was going to St. Louis where I also have family in St. Louis. The Toco name is there too. Um, and so he said, I'm going to come for you someday. And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure. He's kind of a pauper. Her father had money, a little bit of money. And so he got off the boat and speaking no English started a fruit uh, fruit truck and then eventually opened in construction and made a bunch of money over the next several years. By the time he'd been in America for a couple of years, he was the modern day equivalent of a millionaire. Um, so hustled his butt off speaking, but there was a, a very condensed Italian community in, in that area of gross point in Detroit, Michigan, very condensed. I mean, that, like, it's just like something you see like in New York and the Godfather, it was just all Italian. Like nobody mm-hmm. even spoke English in the area. And so my grandfather spent four years in the military in world war two. He, uh, He's a medic. Um, he, he helped. He's very proud to tell, tell me all the time that he helped the soldiers feet. Their feet were jacked up you know, and he, he'd help them out. And then um, he saved his last year's income, every dollar, which would, I guess, be the modern day equivalent of probably twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, $30,000 and bought this huge ring. Came to Detroit, 
didn't even go see her, found the father. Now, at this point, the guy's a, the father's kind of a big shot construction guy. You know, this big construction company that's building houses and apartment complex and, uh, and big, beautiful homes. And he walks up and says, I'd like to take your daughter's hand in marriage. And um, he shows him the ring. The guy says, my, my great-grandfather, Pietro Lido, says, okay. And they married. He's like, I'll give you a house for, for your wedding gift. So for $1, he gave him the modern-day equivalent. The house today is worth a couple million dollars. And it's not really that extravagant considering the area. It's really not. There are areas, if you go up the road, up Lakeshore Drive, a couple of miles where Art Van, the furniture mogul, and Art Modell, the Domino's pizza guy, all these huge people live there. Where we lived, it was much less, but still very fluent and a lot of money. And the weird thing about that was it was right on the border of Detroit. So when you go like two blocks over from my house, you're on the border of Detroit, Alter Road. And as soon as you cross Alter Road, you're in the ghetto. I mean, just black ghetto. And um, that's what kind of drove everybody out of there over the years because the blacks were coming in and stealing hubcaps and cars and robbing people. My, my grandmother got mugged. And anyways, um, so that's what, that's one thing real quick. Uh, Cause I'm from, I'm from Michigan. Also I'm from the Detroit yeah. area. That's one of the craziest things about gross point is it's, there's really a fluent area butts up to the worst part the of Detroit. Yeah. One of the worst for sure. Not right. the worst, but, but the, not, not a nice area back then it was, um, it was not nice today. It's, it's a lot worse, but I mean, I've been in way worse ghettos than that, but it was, it was, it was pretty bad. My grandma, had, I got attacked coming out of the bank one time and the guy wanted her wedding ring. He wouldn't take, give it to her. So she punched, he punched her in the face and was fighting with her and screaming and people came and helped. But that's when the final straw, they're like, we're moving farther North into the suburbs. So they end up buying a house just on the border of Gross Point, St. Clair Shores, um, far from Detroit, you know, five, seven, eight miles from Detroit. But anyway, so the interesting part about this all is, I guess, interesting, is that my grandfather was the first cousin a Giacomo Black Jack Toco. So he, all my life was the boss. And I think he became the boss of the mob in Detroit. I mean, I guess, I think he was the acting boss about the time I was born. I was born in 73. I think 75 became the acting boss. At 79, he became the official boss. And um, that's all I ever knew. Like, I didn't even know this. So here's where it gets weird. When I was a kid, there's a couple instances, like people always ask, did you know you were my, here's the thing. I remember some girl that I crush on, right? Um, well, her name wasn't Jackie, but anyways, I, that's the other girl I crush on. He said, uh, she was invited, like she had a birthday party. She was inviting kids to her birthday party and she didn't invite me. And I was heartbroken. And I was like, what, what the frick, why? And I saw her at school and said, why didn't you invite me to your birthday party? She says, my mom said you're in the mafia. And I said, what the frick? I don't even know what that is. I mean, what? And um, I just was like, what? I might have asked my mom and my mom just kind of like looked at my grandma. and was like, whatever. Might ask my uncle, my uncle Pete, who lived with us too. My uncle Peter Paul Toko Jr., who was only 12 years older than me. So he's kind of like an older brother. Not at the time yet, like an older brother. He was just kind of my uncle. But he would eventually kind of, by the time I was in my teens, he was like almost like a brother to me. He's a wise guy, hustler, street guy. And anyways, and then, you know, so I'm driving around. The same thing happened twice, actually. Some kid would, couldn't play with me anymore. And he said, because your family's in the mafia. So I asked my uncle, what is this? He said, it's just our family. You'll learn later, whatever. So I don't know, but I'm now pay I'm paying a little more attention to things. And the thing is, like, you see movies like Goodfellas and you know, The Godfather even. And you see wise guys come in, how they look in suits and, and their clothes and their pinky rings and their Cadillacs and stuff, um, you know that's what that was that was everyday life for me every day so so they come into our home and they stay with my grandpa they speak in sicilian they hang out for a minute they have a cup of coffee or a sandwich or something you know and, and interact with my my aunts and my my grandmother and my grandpa and then they leave and then they come they'd always be talking to, you know 
could be a dollar, could be five, could be 20. Like my uncle Nicky used to hit me with $20. And I remember Tony Giacalone would always hit me with money too. And he's famous guy in mobster. He's the last guy to be seen. Or that's where Jimmy Hoffa was going to meet the day he disappeared was Tony Giacalone. And so, and he taught me to play poker when I was like 10. So oh, wow, anyway, that's awesome. Yeah, I know it was awesome. That's actually a good story. I'll tell you in a second. So I, I so I'm around this so much that it didn't seem abnormal to me. I, I just, it was the only life I knew. The only world that I knew was this. So it wasn't abnormal. It was absolutely normal. I had, you know, now if you were an outsider looking in, if you came to my house and hung out for a day or two, you'd say, wow, man, freaking mobs are just coming and going all day. So, but I didn't know. There was a point where I was sitting on the front lawn playing with my Tonka toys. And, um, and this scene makes it into my book. You'll remember this scene. Um, uh, I was playing with my Tonka toys and I look up and there's a, a car looked like in the street across the street and down a couple houses with a like a long range camera taking pictures i didn't know what it was my grandpa was in the back in his, in his tomato garden he was just like he's just like the godfather he's out there you know when his tomatoes were his life and i said grandpa there's somebody up front taking pictures of me he, he freaking gets mad he grabs a brick a brick right out of the, like the paver brick he comes running up on this fed car he says Mother effers, not my, not my family, not at my home. Smash. And he smashes the window, uh, the windshield with this brick and they, uh, they peel off, you know? And so that was the feds were, you know, doing surveillance. And we, there was, and then, you know, I started paying a little more attention and I could hear them. They most of the time spoke in Italian or Sicilian. So I didn't understand it much, but then sometimes they speak in English and I could. So I'd eavesdrop and listen to what they were talking about. And so my grandpa, my, my mother was mentally ill. So my grandfather kind of became my proxy father and so did my uncle and they would take me to the Eastern market in Detroit, which you're familiar with the Eastern market. Mm -hmm. It's all mobbed up. The whole you know square mile is just basically owned by the mob, all the produce, wholesale vendors and produce and meats, everything. It's all still to this day. It's, it's all mobbed up. And um, so I would go down there and because I was a toko, I guess, see my grandfather, now I didn't really figure this out even till later, late in life till I was right before prison. But my grandfather was tight with the boss, right? But I, my grandfather, I don't think was ever a made dude, um, didn't want to be. Uh, but his co younger cousin, Giacomo, or Black Jack, was very close to him. Their fathers were actually first cousins, but they were raised as brothers. So that's a crazy story in itself. So they were close. He'd come over, and they would talk in Sicilian. He liked these cookies, what got the cookies my grandma would make. She'd make, always make him some. And everybody treated him differently. I, I know. So eventually, like when I was about 14, my uncle Pete said, yo, he's the boss. I'm like, the boss of what? He's the boss of the whole family. I'm like, and I didn't, I'm putting piecing this together, you know, like family, what do you mean the family? He's like everything, you know, us, it's our thing, whatever. So now I really, when he's around, I'm, I'm not nervous or nothing like that. Uncle Jack, but he didn't look at me like nothing. I was this little kid, you know, even when I was older in my teens and twenties, he just looked at me like I was a punk because I was, and why wouldn't he? He's the boss and he's, you know, he's an old man, but his Gumbadi was my grandfather and they'd come and they would talk in the back room they'd shut the door and talk in sicilian often whispering and crying and then he'd leave and then my grandfather would go see his his other goombas or sometimes tony jackaloni would come over and my grandpa would give him a box of fruit because he owned a produce business now i'm sure in that box was money you know and that that would like tony jack would come over with a box of stuff on the market and my, when whenever jack toko would leave he left with a box of fruit and vice versa. And there's a lot of things, you know, so the, there was a lot of information and a lot of, I'm sure, money um, exchanging between the, the street level wise guys, top administration and my grandpa and the boss, because the right. boss didn't really deal with anybody. He only dealt with like five, four people. 
I mean, it was just only his closest cousins, his brother. Um, that's it. He was not an approachable mob don. He wasn't somebody you walked up to and was like, hey, you know, let's hang out. Nothing like that. He just he he tried very hard to live a normal life. He he sued anyone who who accused him of being a mobster, um, including the newspapers, lawyers, anyone, anyone who made the claim because he'd never been convicted. Right. So. He he would just he would hammer him and sue him and law millions of dollars. He's made so much money, it was stupid. And um, they believe when he dies, he's worth a hundred million dollars at least. It's probably low, but um, so he tried very hard to shake off this stigma and, and this public stigma of being the mob boss. But of course, you know the, the way it works in Detroit, everybody's supposed to be very quiet about it. Everybody's supposed to keep it secret. Everybody and it and they do very they do a really good job at it. So, anyways. So the progression goes, I, um, I, I get, okay, I ended up going, I, I got kicked out of school when I was 15 years old. I was a bad kid. I was a bad seed, a bad kid. I was just naturally bad. It, it happened because, um, no, you know, I had a tumultuous childhood. My mother was mentally ill. My dad was a drunk woman, beaten alcoholic, uh, who will admit to this day that had she told my mother told her father or brothers how he treated her, he'd be dead. He would have been killed. And you now he knows that. And she never told because she knew that she knew if she went to her brother and said, he's been beating me up, whatever would have been it. They would have killed him. And that would have been that. She didn't want it to happen. But, um, so I was, when I was like 11, I moved, my mother moved us out of my grandparents' house to had her own house, but she was still sick. And I was just a wild child, had no direction, no, no, you know, no father figure, nothing. My dad would see me like every other weekend, you know, take me fishing or something. But, um, so I was wild as hell. And, um, fighting always fighting always in trouble i just i had a thing with bullies i didn't like bullies if somebody was bullying somebody uh, that was kind of weak or passive or you know submissive I, i'd snap dude i'd snap i was known for it i was just crazy so they all thought i was crazy because i wasn't a big kid or nothing and i was a little skinny kid but if you were picking on somebody or me because i got picked on too and when they did i'd let them have it you know kids that are three grades older than me i'm fighting with them on the schoolyard you know you know so and winning too and winning so a lot of people just looked at me like the crazy kid, you know, Al Limblum, the crazy kid. He's that crazy kid. He's a little, you know, he ain't all there, which I wasn't. And so the irony is that I was had a, a an intelligence level that was gifted. And they did some tests and IQ tests and stuff like that. And they're like, dude, you know, he's he's only a couple points from genius. He's very smart. He just doesn't apply himself. He gets distracted. So they put me on Ritalin and all kinds of crap. They didn't do nothing. They even put me in a class for, spe- for special kids. And um, and I looked at all these other kids like they're freaks, you know, because they look weird and they're freaks, you know, like super nerds. But they're, they're probably all doctors and astronauts now or whatever. But but at the time, they looked like freaking weirdos to me, you know, and I didn't do well in that class. I just I was just I was abrasive. I was, you know, um, just I interruptive. So they put me back in my, my other regular class where I was terrible there, too. I just couldn't pay attention to nothing. So. I ended up getting expelled from Lance Cruz schools when I was in eighth grade for beating up a bully in front of my principal. This was the 10th fight I'd been in, in 10 weeks. They stopped even suspending me. They put me in a, um, in a, on a closet. This is a horrible thing to do, by the way. They put me in a closet. closet. Well, it was like a little room, you know, that was, yeah. you know, that was it. A tiny closet sized room with a desk and they will go, here's your homework. You know, see you in eight hours. You can leave for lunch, food, you know, lunch break and, and, and bathroom break. That's it. And they make sure I didn't leave. And it's horrible, man. It's just a nightmare. It's like being in prison. It's like being in jail for a little kid like me, you know, a high, strong, hyper kid like me. But that's what they were doing. Every time I get in a fight or get in trouble, they just do that. Um, and then one day there was this kid who was bullying. His name is um, Bill Plunkett. I still remember his name. He was bullying another kid named Bruce. We called Bruce the Moose because he was a big, big kid, real big kid. We called him Bruce the Moose. And he was um, 
drinking at the drinking fountain and leaning over to get a drink. And the, the kid, Bill Plunkett, who's a new kid, relatively new, handsome kid, walks over and like slams him into the drinking fountain. Like could have knocked the guy's teeth out, you know, off the drink. And I snapped. The guy's got a, now the kid, the bully kid has a bunch of pencils, like a whole pack of pencils in his hand. I walk over to him. I don't say nothing. I just grab the pencils. I snap them over my knee. I throw them in his face and say, you want to bully someone? Bully me. He don't say nothing. So I said, that's what I thought. I turned around and walk away and he jumped on my back like a freaking monkey. I flipped him over to my shoulder and started wailing on him. Well, I didn't realize my principal was standing freaking 10 feet away. Solved the whole thing. So his name was Peg Leg Johnson. Yeah, he had a peg leg. His name was Mr. Johnson. So he told, that's it. It's over. So he couldn't, my mother at the time, by the way, was in a mental institution and me and my sister were living on our own. Like we, we had no supervision, zero. My, my sister was like 16 and I was 14 or whatever. And so we had no supervision. Our house was trash, filthy, you know, whatever. And so they called my house. They couldn't get a hold of her. So they called my dad. He don't answer because he's a freaking drunk. So they called my grandparents and then my grandparents were like, what the F she's in the hospital. So essentially they found out she was in the hospital, came and saw our trash house. She's like, you know, she went to, they went to my dad and said, you got to take him. He needs uh, you know, male supervision. He needs, you know, what? so my dad, uh, who's a drunk, takes me in, but like barely even buys food. And he's just a total douchebag. My sister was able to stay in her school because she was 16. She had a license. So she got to drive a car. She had a car, this old crappy Omnio she drove. Um, and I started a new school. And the second day in, I got in a fight with like the second toughest kid in the school who was trying to bully me. Um, I won't say I beat his ass, but I'd say I won the fight. Um, it was a good fight, long fight. We fought for like a, a legit, like probably seven minutes. And I mean, I don't know if you know how long that is in the fight. But seven yeah, that's minutes. Right. That's crazy. Yeah, it was a long fight. And Fights was, usually last like 30 seconds. Yeah, so exactly. Seven minutes is, is a oh, lot. Oh, dude, it was, I thought I was going to die after. Literally thought I was going to die because I couldn't even ride my bike. Um, we went back and forth fighting. We had each other like in a hockey fight type of thing. Bang, bang, bang. The, the crazy part was it was it was like minus seven degrees out. And here's the really Ugh. crazy part. Oh, yeah. The, here's the really part. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. I told, I tried to get, start a fight with this guy. I threw basketball at his head. He slapped me in the head in gym. And I said, all right, I'm going to get him. I threw basketball at his head. Who did that? I said, I did. Let's fight. What do you want to do? And he's like, I'm going to kick him off the basketball team. Like, we'll do it after school. Do, do it tomorrow after, after, after school. Well, the next day, I, I go home that night. I said, okay, I'm going to beat this guy. I come down with the flu. Horrible flu. I mean, really sick. It's flu. So there's this one kid now who walks down my, past my house on the way to school. His name is Mickey, Mickey Walsh. And I said, Mickey, you tell him meet me tomorrow after after at 12 o'clock at the school so everybody's expecting me to be there the next day to fight this dude after school every, the whole school and i don't show up i look like a straight bitch you know what i'm saying because i don't show up but i'm sick i'm like deathly ill even the next day when i do show up, and by the way the next day there had been a half it was a half a day and they got out at like 11 or 12 and i got there like 12 30 i think i said 12 30 so when i show up there was nobody there except the kid mickey and his brother and then this guy named Gino, who would later become one of my good friends. Um, and so me and him just duked it out for like seven minutes straight. And um, I, I got, ended the fight with a good shot. His nose blew his nose up. And he was bleeding all over the place. He's like, all right, all right. I said, all right. Yeah. And that was it. I had a breath dying. I, I couldn't even get on my bike. Through. I was so cold. I was so injured. Like I was so bruised up and you know, lumped up. And and I remember walking, walk. I was riding my sister's bike. Don't even know why my sister's bike. I must have left my bike at some at my house. I, maybe I didn't have my bike there over there yet. I've only been there going to school a couple of days. And um, whatever. I think I left my bike at my friend Jay's house. Um, my my where my old neighborhood. It's in their garage. So I don't even have a bike. I drove my sister's bike. Anyways, I'm walking the bike and I'm just 
like, dude, I'm breathing so hard. I can't catch my breath. I'm freezing, like literally freezing to death. All I had was a sweatshirt on. It's minus seven. I got a half a mile walk, you know. And so anyways, I just, I ended up failing eighth grade that year, failing. Um, and then the following year, they put me back in eighth grade and I was just a freaking terror. I was just a horrible kid. Didn't do work. You know, start, that's about the time I started selling weed. My dad wasn't buying food, right? So I was hanging around, I started hanging around this kid named Ricky and this other kid named Jimmy and, um, and their cousin sold weed. So we'd go, Ricky would steal stuff and we'd smoke weed and I, I'd always be able to hustle up a couple of bucks. So I started buying a bag of weed, selling a few joints of it so I could buy another bag and always have a few joints and a little couple of dollars to spend. But I was starving, man. So I actually ended up taking this crappy ass moped, like you know, to Roseville. So it's like a city over. It's qu- quite a ways away from my house. I was at thirteen in like Greater Mac, and I had to go all the way to like almost a love mile in Gra- Grosbeck area. It's a long freaking way. You know, this crappy ass moped. The, the throttle was a wire. You just pulled this oh. wire. It <laughs> really rigged it. up. It was all rigged. It was a piece of hoopty, man. Hoopty. So I go over there and one thing led to another. I asked these freaking these dudes who I saw as high rollers. They had badass cars and ninjas and low riders and crap. I asked them to front me some weed. They first thought I was crazy. They're like, you know, come on, man, little kid, whatever. And then I said, listen, man, I'm hungry. I, I know. And so this dude named, I won't say his name, but he fronted me a quarter pound of weed that day. I sold the whole quarter pound that day, made like 400 bucks um, in profit and bought all groceries, all groceries, brought it all, all to my house. I made two or three runs on my moped from great scott it used to be called great scott or kroger and um and my dad comes home like where all these groceries come from they're mine don't touch them because he would tell me don't eat don't touch that that's mine don't touch that that's mine so i'm a 14 year old 15 year old starving little kid man i was hungry i was an athlete i played sports i was super athletic i was super active he would like go here's some crackers and cheese that should last you all day and i'm like what the frick man and so i ended up starting to hustle well that year i ended up getting expelled from school I was 15 years old. I get a spell from school. I go, uh, they just say, you know what? We don't want you here. So now I'm out in the streets, just running around selling weed. It's when I, you know, I, when everybody's in school, the only people that are left are a bunch of freaking losers. You know what I'm saying? The people who smoke, drug, uh, you know, use drugs, scam, rob, steal, scumbags, dropouts. So that became my basic circle in, of influence um, where people, are, and, you know, I bought another moped, a nicer one, because I had a mo- little money from selling weed. And uh, so I selling a little Coke and just, and hustling with all these scumbags. And then um, they put me up in high school. I lasted nine weeks in high school before they expelled me. And this is where the turn, this is a very big turn of events here for me. They expelled me because my friend Ricky, who's a scumbag, thieving scumbag, he's real popular and, and he's good looking. So the girls liked him and everybody liked him. So like I hung around him because I was new still. Not a lot of people knew me. I just was happy to have a friend that was popular that people liked. And so, but he was a thief. And so what he would do, he figured out how to get into lockers at school. There's a, there was a trick to it. If you spin the lock back, you, you hear it click or feel it click. And he'd open it up and he'd steal jackets. He'd steal purses or wedding. He's just a scumbag. He'd steal anything that, that goes value. He tells me one day, I see, you know, I'm the weed man because I, but I'm talking like I might sell, I might get a quarter pound a week and break it down into bags, which is not like I'm some big baller or nothing. And, uh, and the people would bring me stolen property all the time. They'd bring me like this car amps, stereos, fuzzbusters, stuff like that. And I would buy them. I'd throw them aside in my rooms. When people come over to buy a bag and like, you looking for an app or a fuzzbuster? And I'd sell, I'd double my money on them. I'd get a fuzzbuster for freaking $5 worth of weed. And then I'd sell it for 25 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever it is. So he, he steals this jacket, but he tells me it's his brother. And his brother would go on to be a wise guy, too, a, a, a tough guy who worked for the Zarelli um, crew, which is the underboss and his crew. 
Uh, he was always kind of a dunce, just this kind of fat, dopey dunce. But, you know, he was a tough guy. And um, in anyways, he, he Ricky says, this is my brother's jacket. I'm trying to sell it. I said, you didn't steal this jacket now, did you, Ricky? He said, no, no, Frank gave me this. this it don't fit him no more. He just gave it to me. I'm selling it for 50 bucks. So give me a quarter ounce a week. So you sure you didn't steal this? No, I didn't steal it. So I give him a quarter ounce of weed. A badass leather coat. At the time I was into that thing, I had troop jackets, I had a leather troop jacket, a couple of leather troop jackets and leathers and Max Julians. And, you know, and so I wear this badass leather school in a day or two, whatever. And the kid, he stole it from sees me wearing it. And he goes over to the school cop named Chapman, Officer Chapman. And they call me in. I'm like, where'd you get this jacket? I'm like, I bought it from some guy. I'm like, who? And they I bought some dude on the corner who's selling in the corner on Greater Mac. And they know I'm freaking lying. They're like, tell us where you got this jacket. Did you steal it? Did you steal it? I said, I didn't steal it. I'm a thief. They assumed I either stole it or probably figured Ricky did it. Ricky was the main culprit. They knew he was a scumbag, um, and he, but he's my boy. I wouldn't tell on my boy. I told my mother. This is how weird it was. My mother called his mother and said, tell your freaking son to fess up to what he did so my kid doesn't have to get a case. And right. she's like, oh, he, 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 what, Ricky wouldn't do it. He's a pussy. So I catch a case. And um. Might have been my first case. No, I think I had one uh, destruction of property over 100 already. And that wasn't my fault either. My friend, other friend, Ricky, was a graffiti artist. And when I was up north camping, he decided with my dad for a week, he decided to go around to like five different schools in the area and tag them with our little our crew called Brookie Boys. We had a crew called Brookie Boys, just little thugs in the neighborhood. And, uh, and he tags it. And then he signs our initials. What an idiot. Oh, yeah. Why would you a criminal start? mastermind? Right. He's still the dude's still a fat, dope idiot, man. I don't talk to him. He's an absolute idiot. But um, I mean, you sign my initials. So then they get a witness that says they saw him doing it somewhere and they go and question him. And he admits he's like, Oh, who's the rookie boys? And they're like, Oh, me, L, blah, 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 blah. And so they charge me with malicious destruction of property over 100. I end up get, uh, getting put on probation. I think I got a couple days in the youth home and my dad had to pay the restitution, the cleanup fee, like $700, part of the seven. And that was a lot of money back then, especially to my Jewy ass dad. My dad literally said, you smacked me. He said, you're not getting a Christmas present for the rest of your life. Exact words. When he picked me up at the youth home and said, you're not getting a Christmas present for the rest of your life, which he, you know, he didn't stick to it, but I'm just saying. So that was my first case. Then I got um, the, the possession of stolen property, receiving thing and that, got me expelled. My grandpa actually tried to muscle the, the school district. My grandpa Toko, it's the first time I ever saw my grandpa Toko flex his, his, uh, his name. And he came in there, they set up a meeting and comes in there. It's me, my mom, him. Um, they got the cops there. They got the administrators there, the board of director people from the, the school district. He walks in. First thing he says is, do you know who I am? And they're like, yeah, Mr. Toko, we know who you are. He's like, well, listen, I want my grandson to graduate high school. I want him to stay in school. And they're like, we don't want him. He's a bad apple. He's not welcome here. You know, he comes to school high, he hangs around a bunch of thugs. He's trouble, stolen property, but we don't, he's not welcome here. He can go to adult ed. He can do whatever he wants, but he, he's not coming back here. And they said they stuck to it. And they said, F, they didn't care. So that was that. Now I'm back out on the street. Now I did, I did enroll in like adult ed, which was a joke. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, you know, you, typically you have to be 16 years old to get into adult ed. Um, but I was, they let me in at 50. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't even 16 yet. And they said they made an exception to let me in. You know, that's embarrassing. That is, you know, that you're now you're this loser and this adult ed and all these older people there and there, their, their ages, a lot of the most of the adult ed guys are 20, 22, 25 years old. I'm this little 15 year old loser. And I dressed like a thug and I had these freaking $800 jackets on big gold chains. You know, I thought I was a rapper. You know, I, looked, <laughs> I looked like I was you know, yo on TV rapper or something. And anyways, I just started running around the streets and selling weed until my, my uncle Pete Toko one day, excuse me, 
I'm drinking a protein shake because I got to work out in a minute. I'm dying of thirst here. Mm. You're, you're good. My grand, my uncle. So I started making a little money. Sure. My, my dad questioned how I was getting the money. And I, he said, he's selling drugs. I said, no, I'm investing in drugs. What do you mean? Well, I give my money to drug dealers and they, it's like a, you know, it's a loan and they pay me a percentage on it. Points. And I was like, yeah, don't, he said, don't bring those, don't bring it in the house. I'm like, no, I'm not. And I was, of course I was. But, um, so one day I'm at my grandparents' house. I always, I still went to my grandparents' house every weekend. Um, even when I was living with my mom, those t- three tumultuous years, we, we'd go on Friday, stay there, eat, hang out, do our laundry, and then come home Sunday night. But still, it's like, it was, it was a routine, a ritual our entire life. Every s- Sunday, you'd go to your grandparents' house for dinner. You know, it's, it's an Italian thing. You know, it's, I think I, there's a lot of Italians that still do that, but it was our thing. And, um, it was it's another weird thing is how we kissed. We, we uh, Sicilians kissed themselves. They literally kissed on the lips, like the side of the lips. When they, as soon as you open the door, hey, I doing like you get a kiss. It's uh-huh. kind of weird. I, I stopped doing it when I was in my twenties because my sister said, you know how weird it is. Like you kiss aunts and uncles on the lips. And I'm like, what's what we've been doing our whole life? She's like, she's like, I know, but nobody else does it. I'm like, that's what we do. So, anyways, one day my my, my uncle had bought me this leather jacket, right? Um, which was cool. I liked it. It was a cool leather jacket. It's like a bomber jacket, black bomber jacket. And he happened to have the same one. So, you know, he didn't know what I was doing. You know, he knew I was a little troublemaker and I've been, got a couple felonies and been in trouble, youth home, whatever. But um, now he, he's a wise guy. He's a, he's a, he's a straight cut street hustling wise guy, no job, you know, but a nice new car, gold chain dresses to the tee. He also hung around a bunch of bikers, which is really weird economy because at any given day you, you see him in a freaking track suit or or suit and tie or like a biker jacket it was really weird he like bounced in and out of both worlds outlaw bikers um but i didn't like the bikers i thought they were dirty scummy and weird i was like why would he ever want to associate with them freaking people i had no idea why i never did figure out why but um but he was a straight cut street guy and one day he uh i was at my grandparents house sorry for sunday dinner and put my jacket on the back of the chair and i had a you know, ounce of weed in there in the, in the pocket and, and it's a bunch of cash you know $800 not a cash not a ton but you know it's stuffed in my pocket it's a bomber jacket it's zipper pockets so my uncle says you know I gotta, I gotta, listen Ma, I'll be back in a while I'll make a run to the market he grabs the jacket thinking it's his puts his jacket on comes back a couple hours later and says Alonzo the basement it's in the basement you know and he freaking pulls this freaking ounce of weed he goes what the f- is this I'm like I'm like 16 years old 15 16 years old I said, what's freaking way? Why? What? So what? And I'm really scared though. I'm really scared because like drugs in in our house, you know, drugs are really bad. Like my grandparents really were against drugs because my uncle, that same uncle got busted with Coke around the same time selling Coke. And like, it was a big deal, man. They like, he's had to spend a fortune to get him out of it. He went to jail for a minute and they just harped on him every freaking day about it. Every day they yell at him about drugs and drinking druggy, you junk, drug, drug, drug. And I'm like, so in my mind, I'm like, there's like drugs. And I'm thinking as soon as he pulls that out, Oh no, he, did he tell grandpa? If he told grandpa, I'm in real trouble. He says, what the frick is this? I said, so we, he's like, he opens the bag and he looks at it smells it he says this is bullshit and he throws it at me he's like listen if you're gonna sell weed sell good weed come here and he says follow me so we go upstairs and we go outside in the garage and it's funny because i got a banana box right here There's a, oh sorry it's not video i, I saw the banana boxes my grandfather you know he, he owned a produce uh, business so in the garage were all these boxes of fruit and a lot of it was stuff that was like bruised fruit and or, or boxes of fruit that he's gonna give the kabaddis or whatever and but in the corner there was like you know, 
10 of these boxes and he digs through uh, one of them and he opens up and in, in it was the most weed I'd ever seen. You know, it was like probably 10 pounds of weed. And oh, he wow. said, he pulls one out and he says, how much are you paying for your weed? And I think it was a, I think it was like, I don't know, eight, 900 bucks a pound. Might've been a thousand. And he says, all right, that's the price you're paying. Take it, go. And, you know, and so that was it. I started selling weed for my uncle now. And then, um, and then I just progressed. And, and a lot of people don't know, like at that time, having good weed was a big advantage. Like in Michigan, oh, yeah. now people are spoiled because it's recreational. So everything's good. But, but back yeah. in that day, it was a lot of, you know, oh, yeah. terrible Most, Mexican, those- Mexican brick weed. Well, listen, this is how it actually how I got into the game for real, man. True story. I told you I started selling. I was selling. I'd buy a bag of weed, right? And I'd roll up like 10 joints and keep like, I'd roll up like 15 little joints. And I'd sell like 10 of them. So I'd have five of them myself. Tell them I'd sell each one for $5. Here's where I'd go. I'd go to the Oxford Robo Apartments. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they're called really bad all black apartment ghettos at Quinn Road and between uh, 15 and between 15 and 14 mile road actually it's off of quinn road between gratiot and harper there's a there's an area in there it's really ghetto and so i had a couple friends in there black friends that i met from my adult ed school right they went to adult ed with me so i'd go over there my open this is like a horrible i call it the panic zone very violent people are getting shot and robbed in there all the time so i grabbed my cousin frankie frankie was a wise guy he's a he's a the son of a wise guy um he was a, a lunatic he would come with me and wear his gun. Now we're on mopeds. Keep in mind, we're still on, we're that young. We're at 15 years old. He carried this big 44 revolver that he stole from his dad. And he'd wear it like right out. When we pulled into the, the panic zone, he'd like pulled it, like it would sit right there and out, out and open. Um, and there were black dudes, crack dealers. They sit in the corners, right? They never, and I, all on, on the corners, they'd just be waiting for cars to ride by and they'd you know, walk up. How many you want? And they'd throw down and they sell crack. So I knew some of them um, from this adult ed school, you know, my boy, Carlos, Sidney Norton, um, Ray. So I would go over there to see them. And the crack dealers would be like, man, you got some of that good white boy weed. I know you white boys always got that good weed. You got that good weed. We all, all we get is this dirt weed. Blah, blah, blah. And I'd like, yeah, I sell you a couple of joints, you know, and I'd sell it to them. And they'd be I want it all. I'm like, nah, I'm selling it all. But I'll sell you, like, I'll sell you 10 of them at five bucks a pop. They didn't care. These guys were making like eight, 900 bucks a day, which is a lot of money back then, you know, yeah. uh, this corner selling drag dealers, like eight, 900 bucks a day. And there's like 20 of them. In there. So that's what I told the guy when I went and drove my moped to Roseville and told that the weed dealer, I said, listen, I can move any amount of weed with these guys. And I told them why these crack dealers got money. So he said, all right, I'll try you out. Gave you a quarter pound. I went right to the panic zone. I rolled it all up. I, I just, all I did was eighth quarters. And half ounces, right? And I walked in there and I said, listen, this is what I got. The good weed, man. And they're like, you know, I'm not cutting no breaks. A half ounce is a hundred dollars. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever it was. There was nothing giving you no break. It was 25 and eighth, you know, uh, 50 a quarter or whatever. It was half ounces was a hundred dollars. Yeah. So, and I'd sell it and I killed it. So now I'm, that's how I started pumping, you know? But um, you know, it was not pumping. But I was I was making good money. You know, I went from not having, having broke and starving to having a new moped. A, you know, a lot of clothes and jewelry. Um, had plenty of money in my pocket, and then run, ripping and running the streets. So, I around this time, sixteen years old, still getting in a lot of fights and a lot of trouble. You know, you know, in, in the neighborhood. And um, what happens is I decided wanted I didn't want to be like. I had a friend named Gino who was a tough guy, he's muscle bound. He got all the girls, and I wanted to be like him. So I'm like, I'm gonna start working out, you know, hitting these weights. And then I, I, I introduced the steroids. Now, I didn't really do steroids. I, I tried to do some steroids at that time around 16 years old, but they were fake. 
Somebody sold me fake steroids, you know? Okay. And, okay. and they just, I, we, I did them thinking they were helping, but they, they really weren't. It's just good genetics. I had decent genetics and um, I was working out and eating good, you know? And so I was young. You so it's going to seem like it works because you're yeah, eating and yeah. you're putting in the work anyways. Exactly. And, and that's why I sold steroids. Now this is what happened. I get into the steroid rack. And I started making a ton of freaking money on steroids, selling mostly fake steroids, high end fake steroids. But people don't know the difference. You know, they, they look real. They're in bottles, labels, they got the inserts with them, everything. And I started dealing with this wise guy named Joe DiMaggio. I can't say his name. He, everybody knows he got busted. I almost didn't say his name, but um, it's actually I, I was on a podcast where they actually dug up that bust. Um, Bill Crooks, Partners in Crime, actually talked about the article that he found on it it was a big bust at the time when it, when it eventually happened but i started dealing with this this dude and i started pumping steroids and i was i started getting bigger and buffer and like all of a sudden it changed how everybody saw me first of all i started getting a ton more attention from girls second of all all these like older kids who were always always kind of on the bully tip or like talk down to me or kind of talk slick to me like you know like i was nothing now they're like what's up bell shaking my hand you know what's up and i'm like uh-huh punk ass mother now i put a, i put a little muscle on now you're all on my dick you know punks but i had punked out anyone who tried to bully me like one of the biggest toughest looking dude in the school was chris carver he tried to bully me on like the second day of school my first day of high school or second day of high school and um i stood up to him and people thought it was nuts because i was literally 120 pounds 120 pounds this dude looked like he was 30 he had a full beard dark hair dark oh, a, deep, a, a deep raspy voice he's at least the size i am right now you know, he could at the time he could bench like three fifty. You know what I'm saying? And, and and this guy tried like said something slick. I got right in his face, and I'm like, man, he's like, what, are you crazy? What you gonna do? I said, put your hands on me, find out. I was ready to go, and the whole school's watching. They're like, man, you're gonna get your ass kicked, man. You're gonna get killed. And he got a last this little punk and get his and get his ass killed. I'm like, no, nah, you just ain't gonna punk me, man. You know, you, you're gonna have to prove yourself to me. And you know, you wanna beat my ass and beat it, but you ain't gonna just punk me. You know, we'll see, we'll see what you're gonna do. And so everybody kind of after that kind of looked at me like crazy Al's back, you know, like that crazy Al. And so all these bullies and crap. So I ended up getting busted for selling steroids, um, which which was I was 17 years old when I got busted for selling. There's, I'm going somewhere with this too because this is going to lead right to my book. Um, so when I was 17 years old, I I get busted selling steroids. I get set up. Rose little guy named. Um, um, Jerry Carlton. I, I almost said his cousin's name. I don't want to say his cousin's name. Um, that his cousin was the biggest drug dealer I ever knew, ever, and he retired from the drug game, which okay. is crazy. You, you don't get the many of those. Yeah, you don't usually get to do that. That's not usually the way out of that. Line the of biggest work. drug dealer I ever known actually did retire from the drug game and, and walked away with millions. Um, but um, and he's an interesting kid too, man. Just you looking at him, you would never see drug king back never and he's not just, the typical outcome that's definitely no nah, you know like a little short little short redheaded kid <laughs> just, oh, wow. just, you wouldn't think but he was he was a g you know he had a he had a um a disposition about him he was a tough kid they tried to rob him one time and he shot him five times and he and he jumped out a window and got away i mean he's he's been through some stuff but um god bless him so anyways I get busted. I, I get a good lawyer. This is about the time my mother dies. My mother dies uh, while I'm fighting this case, actually. Um, my, I'm at 19. So I fight this case for like a year and a half. Um, and then I get a, this, a, this lawyer. and So my grandpa actually bribed the judge. I know this sounds crazy, but my grandfather, when I was arrested on this, he went and met the judge who was, you know, the, the, they got the venue to this judge, made sure it was that our lawyer moved it to that judge somehow. And then my grandpa met him for dinner or lunch. And 
gave him an envelope with 10 G's. Says, I don't want my grandson to go to prison. So it was two hand to hand buys of five thousand dollars worth of steroids. So it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, they're hand to hand buys. There's no way out of it. I mean, they just they got me on camera. They got my phone wired. I'm also on the wire now. At the same time, the the FBI and the Feds are, are doing a, our task force. As a whole task force is set aside to the steroid ring, and they at the time when it finally went down, they said it was the largest um, steroid bust in American history. International involved like you know, five countries, you know, eight states, like a hundred and some guys, uh, and I was one of them. I, but I was just a little pi ant, you know, as right. an ant. And the FBI came to my house. There was <laughs> two. And they, they actually seized the book. Um, Joe had this book, a ledger book, and in the book was all the names and coded things of what people take he was really cool when i first i actually got in with the guy because i saw him at the gym and i knew he was the big man i knew everybody knew he was man this big massive huge dude named joe dimaggio and everybody was on his dick big ass boat nice trucks car and stuff and i and my i had a plug through him but that plug was another big tough badass mother effort named uh, jerry Gadette. he ends up getting a scholarship to go play baseball in california so now i lose he's I said, before you go, man, introduce me to Joe. He's like, I will, I will, I will. Well, he never does. So now he goes off to California. Now I'm making a lot of money from these steroids. I'm making legit like, I don't know, five, 800 bucks a week on the average. To me, it's a lot of money as a, as a kid, you know, when you're 17 years old. So I got no, I got all these freaking high school kids from Roseville, Frazier, East Detroit, uh, Mount Clemens and Clinton Township, Harrison John. They all buying steroids from me, you know, all the high school football players and stuff and all the tough guys and all the workout kids. And now I got no plug. So I see Joe at the gym and I just kind of walk up to him and said, Joe, you know, can I, you know, can I talk to you for a minute? And he says, kind of looks at me funny. He's like, what's up? I said, well, let me ask you in private. You know, I, I said, I think, you know, my uncle, my uncle, Pete, yeah, Pete Toko. He goes, Pete Toko, this one. I said, no, Pete Toko, that one. I said, he's like, your mother's grace. He's like, yeah, I know your mother. I said, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, okay. He's like, so going back. And I said, listen, man, Jerry was my guy. A lot of the stuff that Jerry was buying from you was for me. I was moving it, but he's gone. I just wanted to introduce myself and see if we can keep this business going. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my number. Here's my phone. He's when you call, just say, ask, this, ask if I can come use this tanning bed. So I said, yeah. So I said, call me. Now, whenever I went to meet this guy, this is a straight, you know, to me, was a kind of a big shot wise guy. So I didn't come pulling up, bumping in my car like I normally would. I didn't wear like a track suit and a leather jacket and a big old chain out and look like an asshole. I would wear a shirt and tie or a suit, you know, um, and l- played the role. So when I'd pull up, I'd turn my sounds down and down the block. I'd pull up and I'd knock on the door and I said, how you doing, Joe? Good to see you. And he was really respectful. And he was like, I was really respectful. So he liked me. Oftentimes I'd come in his house. He'd tell me to sit down on the couch. He'd be in a meeting with some other wise guys. And then they'd come out and he'd look at, they'd look at me. I was a kid, you know, I was a little kid. These guys are like 30, 35 year old men, the big steroid out or wise guys, whatever it is. And he'd look at me and they kind of look at him like, you know, what's with the kid? And he's like, oh, this is my one of my young guys. And Al, Al, come and meet my friend, you know, Jerry. Here, blah, blah, blah. I just got up and shake. How you doing, sir? Nice to meet you. And, um, and then I go in his office, and he had this giant safe. And he'd open the safe, and he says, you know, what do you need? I said, well, I, I mean, I need uh, anything. And he's like, well, take what you want, and then I'll write it in a book, and then you just pay me when, you're, when you get the money. I said, perfect, you know. And so I go in there, and I take, you know, thousands of dollars worth of steroids. He had, he had literally in there tens of thousands of dollars worth of steroids there's thousands of bottles and this of, of this shelf was winstrol this shelf was testosterone this shelf was this shelf was suspension. it was just you know all the way to the back too you know hundreds of boxes they're all in little boxes and he'd tell me what's fake too by the way he'd be like i beg what's real here is this real and he's like no this stuff is real and this is why the price is this high this stuff is fake 
This stuff is the cheaper fake. You can get this, this, and that for it. This stuff is questionable. That might be fake. So he told me it all. He's like, if you're going to do it for you or your boys, get the real stuff. I'll give you a deal. And so one time, it's like a full on uh, steroids pharmacy. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And he was getting it from like five different countries, getting mailed in. And it was a big deal, man. And uh, and one time when there was a big weed drought, (laughs) like my weed plug dried up, which was my uncle. Something happened. There was a drought. We're waiting. We're waiting. And everybody's bugging me for weed. I need pounds. I go over to his house one day to pick up some steroids, and he, I, I happen to look in the back of his in his uh, uh his safe. There's a big pile of bags of weed, good weed too. Like a, he's got like twelve pounds back there, like the good weed just sitting there. I said, I said, what you doing with all that weed? He's like, I'm ah, trying to get rid of it. I'm like, you can't get rid of it. He's like, why? Can you? I was like, yeah. I'm like, he's like, take it. I'm like, how much? He's like, take it all. And twelve pounds of weed. I was, I was like, hell yeah, because it was a drought. <laughs> Nobody could get good weed at the time. So I was like, hell yeah. And I got, I pumped that weed. And he sold coke too. Eventually, they um they got him, and the feds were on him. They had us, us bugged his house, tons of surveillance. They got a bunch of surveillance of me coming and going. And the dumb thing is, every time we walk, he'd like give us stuff to stuff in a brown paper bag. So we'd walk out with a brown paper bag. Guys were coming and going all freaking day long too. That's the thing. You know, say yeah. brown paper bag. We're all on camera. Plus the mic. They had a mic. They had a, a wire. And so they ended up busting him, and but they my case to hand to hand sale was around in the same time, but they waited to bust me until like three days after him because they didn't want to rattle him. You know what I'm saying? So I mm-hmm. come walk, I walked into the gym, and everybody's like very somber, and they're all looking at me. They all know I'm in with him. They all know I'm a drug dealer. They all know I'm with Joe, and. And I come walking up to the counter and I set my pull out Alpine. If you remember to pull out Alpine, oh, yeah. I set it on the counter with my keys, and I'm like what's going on man was everybody she's like you don't know i'm like no what she's like joe got knocked last night midnight they raided his house and i'm like no it's just my heart dropped i'm just like what and they're like yeah man like and they're rounding everybody up and i'm like oh no and so it was in the paper and all that a couple days later they came to my house which is a funny story i was getting ready to walk out i was we were going to go to the gym i was walking out with my duffel bag my boy mark was parked facing the wrong way on my street in front of my house he's rolling a joint and all of a sudden the detective walks up and like taps the window and he's like he sees it and the guy's sunglasses got a gun and like three beepers and mark tries to hide it and he's like l in there he's like oh i don't know um and so he looks and there's another detective walking up to the door he kind of peels off um and they were cool about it. They were just like, listen, man, you know, at the rest, you're under arrest for conspiracy to deliver uh, anabolic steroids in the amount of blah, 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 blah. I said, uh, I think those are fake. He says, well, they weren't actually. We, we lab tested them. They're real. But even if they were fake, it's the same charge. So um, I said, well, what's the deal? How much is my bond going to be? And they're like, you know, not that much. You know, I mean, probably 5,000 or something, 10%. I'm like, well, can I grab some money? And they're like, cool. They're like, yeah, they, they stepped in the house and, and, um, my dad comes out and is like, what's going on? And I'm like, dad, I'm being arrested, man, for selling steroids, blah, blah. It's very humiliating. And he probably pretty knew what's coming. And I grabbed like a bunch of money, a couple, several thousand dollars. And I put it in my pocket and I drove there. And, and the next day I uh, was given a bond and I fought it for 18 months. And, um, and really wasn't fighting. I was more like postponing it. Not sure why. I just didn't want to go to jail. And, uh, and then, so, but in between that, I actually did go to the youth home when I'm like 17 years old. I got a couple of assault charges, three, three assault charges over like a couple of months. And they wow. kind of, they pile them together. One was a felonious assault, two were assault batteries or malicious assaults. And, um, and then they stuck me in the youth home for 10 weekends 
um, which was a funny story too. I won't go that deep in there, but I actually had to drive myself to the youth home 10 weekends in a row, but I'd li- I, I was able to lie and say I had a job on Friday night and Saturday mornings. So I only had to report to the youth home for at like Saturday at two o'clock to Sunday at five. So I come pulling up the youth home with this bumping, tricked out black Mustang, just boom, boom, boom. And they all knew now they all, after a week or two, they all know who I was. And I was older than most of the kids in there. I was like 17, big muscle bomb, meathead, tough guy. I'm like the most of the kids are in there, like 14, 12, 13, 14. I'm, I'm this like grown ass man reporting. And they all look out their windows because they all see boom, 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 come bowling up. And I park my Mustang right in front of the, the thing so everybody can see it. It was on the camera. So when you're looking at the bubble, when you're in the youth home, there's cameras, like close circuit cameras, you could look up. And there's yeah. my Mustang. It's tricked out. It's got black BBS rims on it, black limousine tinted window. It's low profile. It's pimp. And I walk in drunk as hell i come i come there drunk and high every week drunk as high. i drink about i drink like a 40 or two before i go and smoke a joint and then like stumble up to the thing and eh, hit the thing and like who is it i'm like it's limon reporting for my weekend so i come down open the door and go you smell like alcohol i'd say no i don't they say you, you smell like pot i'm like no i don't but they didn't have the means to check it that then they didn't have like a breathalyzing thing they just bring me in and, and then they like and the other thing was they have to feed you by law because you're juvenile. And like, are you hungry? They have to ask, are you hungry? I was like, yes. So they will bring, they bring a whole cart of food up to the unit. Of, and there was good food, like, you know, hamburgers and, and, and like ribs and, you know, fried chicken and French fries and salad. And they bring it all up. And I had it to myself. And I'd, I was all high and drunk. I'd eat it all. Then I just lay down and watch a couple movies, play some ping pong, tell some more stories and, and then wake up and hang out the next day for a day and then leave. It was, it was 10 times I had to do that. But, but anyways, so around that time, um, it, when I, I, I eventually got convicted of the steroid case, even though my grandfather bribed the judge, I ended up getting six months work release um, in jail, which is now, you know, it's not prison, but six months work. Release. So I'm, I'm like, I, at the time, I still think 19 years old. I turned 20 in jail, come to think of it. So I get work release. I, I, I doctor up, I, did, I got a job at, at like a GNC type of place. It was called, it was called um, Vital Foods, like a GNC. Okay. And, um, and so I, but I doctored up my schedule so I could go get some pussy. You know what I'm saying? So I just said, I was working this day, but really wasn't. And I freaking go, you know, bang my girl. And my girl would sometimes actually meet me in the parking lot just to, just to, you know, get one in before I go to work. But um, they happened to call that day, the jail, to see if I was, you know, there. And they didn't. Really at work. Yeah. And at one, they're like, oh, he's not working today. And I came in and they gave me a warning. Said if that happened, I said, oh, I was confused. I thought I had to work today. I didn't. So when I, when I didn't, I just was going to come back. But I decided to go stop and get something to eat. And, and they're like, you know, whatever. So that they said it happens again. You're, you're up in the tower, which is the main jail. And then so we're, I'm in a couple of days later. I'm having lunch. And I sit down and having lunch. And for whatever dumbass reason, they have us in there with general intakes, like the guys that just came off the street. Um, then they put them in this like seven block, it's, it's called. And um, and there's like they're like eight man cells. And then when there's room for one of those guys in the tower. But this is the work release guys are all down here and we stay down there. But some of the guys go to the tower when a cell or a bunk opens. And this big black dude sits down there and he's like, let me get that cookie, dog. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, man, I eat my cookie, man. I like cookie. He says, man, let, let me get that cookie. He just reaches over my over the table and grabs my cookie. 
So I just jump up and freaking jaw jack and bam. And I just go flying over the table and start pounding this dude's face. In. And I'm on top of him wailing, but just wailing. He didn't even get a punch in. I just freaking pulverize him. I guess he learned a lesson that day. He was a little punk ass little white boy. I'm going to get him. <laughs> He's probably still having nightmares about me. But um, anyways, they cops saw it, came, got me and they stuck. They broke. I, I had to go to the tower and I spent six months in work release. I, I mean, six months in the, in the tower. Well, I mean, I only ended up serving 30 or, uh, I think I I, I end up serving like four months altogether in the tower in the county jail, which sucked, by the way. And then I got out and I didn't want to go live before. Before this, I went to jail, but I was living with my cousins, Joe and Dino. We had our own house on State Fair, in, excuse me, on Maross in Detroit, seven mile. Um, 19210 was our address. I remember it still because like the show 90210 was out. Remember the show? Yeah. 90210? But our address was 19210. So anyways, we it was party central, tons of girls, and they were using drugs. They were dabbling in Nubane, which is like a synthetic morphine, and hmm. bodybuilders used it, and it's just, and they were using drugs, steroids, and it, it was a bad environment. I didn't want to go back to it, so I asked my grandparents, can I come live with you? This is where the light, my life turns probably for the worst. Um, I probably should have went there, but um, so they said, yeah, you know, of course you can live with us, Alonzo. You know, they love me. They're my, like my parents. They picked me up from jail the day I got released and brought me home. And and then, you know, I actually won a scholarship because uh, I, I, I took my GED while I was in jail that time. And I scored so high on the GED that I won a scholarship from George Bush senior the old man yeah, yeah not george bush it was a letter i got a, i got a letter that said you know congratulations and it was like a rubber stamp letter but i got i won like 700 dollars to go oh, wow, apply to awesome. yeah to apply towards the scholarship and the funny part was like you know they give you the ged pretest to see where you stand right so like we got to take the pretest to see what you got to study before you take the real test well they gave me the pretest and i aced it all and they're like you're ready i'm like what i'm like ready i didn't do nothing in high school i don't know i was kicked out i got nothing i did nothing i don't know nothing i'm an idiot then they're like yeah apparently you you learned something because you got all this stuff right so i said okay i took it i aced it and i get this little scholarship so i tell my grandparents i want to go to the community college and then my dad he says i'll give you some money for community college i'll buy you a car um and so and, and my girl, everybody kind of pitched in and I enrolled in community college and I started going to community college for the next year and a half while I was living with my grandparents. But the problem was around this time, Tony Giacalone, um was coming around a lot. Tony Giacalone, his, his daughter had married my cousin, Tony, um, which I didn't know well, but he was my mother's first cousin and they were, they were pretty close, but I didn't really know him. Um, but he was coming around a lot and he was, I, I, this is around the time I started figuring out that Tony Jack is, or my grandpa is kind of a conduit or a go between, between Tony Jack, who is a street boss, the street mm-hmm. boss. Now, now for all intents and purposes, he is the boss of Detroit. He's the, he's the face of the Detroit mafia and the boss. He's the one whose name strikes terror. He's not, now the Don himself is Jack Toko my, and my, my grandpa's cousin, but you don't see him. You don't really hear much about him, but Tony Jack, I mean, he's on, and they believe he's responsible for like 50 murders. You know what I mean? I mean, if you cross Tony, you're in trouble. You know what I mean? You're getting a beating. You're going to get hurt. You know, you're going to get, you're going to learn a lesson. And everybody knew that. And he was coming around a lot. And my grandpa eventually at one point said, Tony, asked Tony to give me a job. Um, and my grandmother said, no, I don't want him. He's going to college. He's going to be a freaking college boy. Da, da, da. This is all at my cousin Nina's graduation party. And I, I finally said, I don't got to say in this. They're all speaking in Sicilian. And she said, no, we're not we're done talking about it. And then anyway, so my grandpa and Tony Jack got me a job bouncing at this bar, Brownies. Are you familiar with Brownies on the lake? I'm not. Oh, it's the east side, really popular east side club on the right on the lake. I'm um, down river. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, 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 I one of my best stories is uh, at, at, at Liquids in Wine Dot. You ever been there? Uh, I know. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun night. I got to do. I could do a whole story on that night, and I will whole show i mean but um but that's the only time i went down there i mean i had cousins stuff from down river wine dot places like that but i didn't i was an east side guy so anyways brownies was the place to be it was not only was it like the big baller central it's like it was right on the lake mm-hmm. and on, they had a lagoon that was attached to a marina and people would come in from the lake on their boats big ballers you know big shot callers pulling in their eight hundred thousand dollar boats and they they valet park them right on the on the along the dock and the deck and it was like baller central here i am 19 years old 20 years old head bouncer running this place now tony and my grandpa got me to the old man named l uh, wagner was his name and um they got told him to give me a job and he did so here i am bouncing at this really high-end freaking nightclub and i'm not even old enough to be in it you know what i'm saying and i was wasn't that big either i was i weighed about 185 i was ripped up you know like a jersey shore muscle bound 185 i did some body building shows when i was 19 so can give you an idea um how, how ripped up I was and big I was, but I wasn't huge. Anyways, it was mob central and the, all the mob lived in gross point, you know, just a mile away. And they all came there to, to flex and floss with the girls and play big shot. They pull up in their boats, they get out and all hang out. And I got to start rubbing elbows with all these high level mob dudes. And they knew who I was because of my grandpa and my uncle, because they all hang out in the market down in the market. So they see me with them or they all own nightclubs and bars and places. So my uncle Pete Toko would say, come on, you know, Alonzo, we're going for a ride. We're going for a ride. So, and so we go and we pop into these bars and these clubs and these pool halls. And they, and then I'd come walking in and, you know, they, they'd see me and they, they knew who I was, my nephew, and my nephew, Al. And they all like, what's up, Al? And they, you know, hang out, play a little poker, roll some dice, shoot, whatever. And so they all kind of knew who I was from that. And they knew I was a toko. Like, you know, they didn't even know my last name was Limblum. That's the crazy part. For years, none of these people know. They just thought I was El Toco because I'd show up with my Uncle Pete Toco and they'd be like, you know, it's my nephew or my yeah, grandpa. Yeah, they never knew. And I didn't like go, oh, by the way, I'm not. So I didn't care. I didn't even think about it, you know. Um, and around that time also, my Uncle Pete said in front of my Uncle Sal, he said, no, this is about the time I started learning about the mob and how the, the hierarchy and the, and the whole family business and how it runs and, you know, and the secrecy part too. And he said, you know, Maybe if you change your name to our name, you know, someday we can get get you on record, man. You know, take the oath. My Uncle Pete was kind of half joking when he said it. And then my Uncle Sal said, you don't want to do that, man. You don't want to do that. Then you got a bullseye on you the rest of your life. You know, you're going to be you're going to be driving around the rest of your life freaking with a bullseye. The feds are going to follow you. They're going to wire up your phone. They're going to do everything. Don't do it, man. You have an out right now. If they tell you something, you tell you to do something, you can tell them no. You don't have to kick up an envelope to somebody every every week or every month. You just forget that, man. Live your life. Go on. Live, do do what you're doing now, which is on your own, essentially. I mean, I still had to kick up to my Uncle Pete when I hit a score with him or something. But, I mean, anyways. It's more so, freelance a little bit. You have, It's like contract work. You have some more flexibility. Yeah, yeah I had a lot more freedom to, to do what I wanted. And I like that. You know? Plus, I didn't want the responsibility either. Like, the, the being a full-time mafioso in that world, the world that I'm talking about, it's a full-time thing. Like, it's all they wake up in the morning, they put a suit on, and it's, and it's Cosa Nostra from the second they wake up to the second they go to bed. And, and, it's, and there's, you know, it's such a reclusive world. They're only interacting with each other. They're not, you know, they're, yeah, people know. Um, certain people know and kind of hint toward it, but it's, it's not, it's very secretive. And especially in my family, it was, it's all blood related. Everybody's blood related in Detroit. So it's like, it's not like, it's, 
And there was so, to give you an idea, dude, I was getting told guys are made when I was like 28, 29 years old before I got locked up. Guys are coming in. And my grandpa goes, he's a friend of ours. Or, or my uncle would say, he was a friend, he's a friend of ours, friend of ours. I'm like, dude, I, I didn't even, how, like, I never, like, some of them I'd never seen before. Some of them I'd seen around the market, but I didn't know. Now, keep in mind, I've been around, I've seen a guy for 10 years, never knew he was a freaking, he, he was a, you know, he's a made dude. Yeah. There, there was quite a few of those. And that's how secretive they are. And like, that's another misconception of people from the mafia. They think like everybody in the mob or in the family has each other in their Rolodex and their phone. And they can just call like, like people think I can, uh, you know, like I'm, I was in mob in Detroit. I could just pick up the phone and call John Gotti or something. It's so stupid. They don't realize how, how silly it is. But most of the time, my uncle Pete's crew was me and maybe 10 guys. Right. We only interacted with, you know, let's say, five, six, seven other mob guys. So I knew what those guys were, who they were and where they're from. And I knew their family lineage. I knew who they, where they came from, whose uncle or grandson they were, whose nephew. I knew all that. But the other 200 guys in the mob in Detroit, no idea. No idea who that. I mean, I, mean, I know they're all related somehow to us or somehow. And, and but I don't know. We, they, you don't talk about it. You don't, you don't ask about it. You know, like, you don't say, well, what's up with Dominic? Like, you know, what's his deal? What's he up to these days? Who's he working for? Who's his capo? Who's it? You know, you don't say nothing like that. You know, it's just, it's, if you get, you get slapped if you ask that. You know what I'm saying? So Which it's is probably why Detroit's been able to maintain more well, of exactly a low why. key, you know, exactly setup <laughs> as opposed to New York and Chicago. That's exactly why. That's why you don't see Detroit and on all over YouTube with uh, cooperators and informants, you know, having their own shows or like I'm, I'm about as close as you'll ever get to that. But I'm I, I'm talking about stuff that I did personally in my life and the people that I dealt with are mostly all dead. So if it revolves people who are alive, I change the names. And but I'm not talking. About, I'm talking about stuff that happened 20 30 years ago you know what i'm saying i'm not talking about what's going on today right. in the family or anyone who's involved today i stay away from that and so but you know today but in the with the new york guys it's like you know guy gets guy gets jumps into witness protection and he's freaking do, doing a youtube show three days later you know what i'm saying he's like what's up? oh yeah <laughs> so, i mean uh, anyways so going back to that so two things happened that were pivotal at that point in my life too and one was my grandfather's eyes started going bad and he had crashed a couple of cars, not bad, but, you know, but, but crashed him up a little bit. And, um, I asked my grandma, why is he, why is he crashing his car? It's like the third time. Plus I was with him. So my grandpa, I always hang out with him and he'd say, let's go to the market. Let's go to my Gumbadi Ninos or, or Gumbadi Polly's or Gumbadi, every Gumbadi, you know, the, the Sicilians, they, then they're at that age when they're in their you know seventies, if they're going to go see somebody, it's a Gumbadi. And Gumbadi is like his, one of their closest friends cousins comment people they've been with their whole life 50 mm-hmm. 60 70 years and an old man like him shouldn't have to go see his goombody ever but he, he goes to see his goombody for a reason so anyways i would ride with him and he knew i was he kind of liked to have me around i was funny and gregarious and and the old wise guys were always asking me about my um well that's how it started really my grandpa's eyes started going bad so i started driving him so he'd he would say let's go and go down to the market we're going to go see this person or that person or this person and this is often after the, the boss was just over at the house the boss would come over and they'd have like a sit down in the back for an hour and then he'd leave you know say goodbye to us or whatever he never, pretty much ignored me but say goodbye to my grandmother my mother uh, my mother was dead at the end there so she wasn't even there and anyways and then my grandfather would say he'd come in and he'd say Alonzo come on let's go let's go downtown we got to go see somebody this person or that person is and i didn't even think like he's like you know grab the box in the 
grab those boxes in the garage, put them in a trunk. We're going to gotta go see her. And then we'd go to see him. And I, you know, I grab, he said, grab the box out of the back. This is the one marked by, and I grab it and then walk in to see the Gumbadi, you know, this is one of his old paisans. And I was like, here you go. And I it mostly was like a box of fruit, you know, but in those boxes of fruit were everything from orders to uh, money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. More more money than anything. I'm not sure where it was going or where it's come from or how it was moving. It's just what it was. And, and vice versa. So we go down to the market and people will come in the business all day and they would bring us from other venues uh, in the area. And they come and pay. He's like, I got to get big strawberries, fresh strawberries, the best in town. They just came in. Here's a whole box of fresh ones. Bring in a mama. She's going to love these. And bring a bunch of, there'd be a whole bunch of like quarts of strawberries. Boom. And he'd say, okay, put them back. He said, Alonzo, put them in the car. Well, I, I, in the box of them strawberries was, you know, $50,000 in an envelope, you know? And then right. of course, w- when Jack Toko would come over to the house, he'd leave with a box of strawberries. You see where I'm going here? So when the boss would come over, much better than the brown bags that you guys. Yeah, exactly. Much better than brown bags. But see, Jack Toko, here's what the here's the here's the beauty of all this. He had a full time surveillance team and he wasn't going to lose it. And that was just it. But his cousin, my grandfather, was his first cousin. They'd grown up together their whole life. And they're friends on paper. My grandfather looked like just a clean, legitimate dude. Yeah, his son was a bit of a half-assed wise guy, but my grandpa was an old guy. He was running this produce business for 40 years. He's just a clean dude on paper. So if Jack Toko goes to see his cousin and walks out of his place carrying a box of strawberries and his cousin sells strawberries, there's no, they're not going to stop him, you know? Yeah. Like, there's a good nothing suspicious that. there. It checks there's out. There's nothing suspicious. And so that's what would happen. And where the money would go from there, I don't know. I'm sure you find ways to to, to uh, cleanse it or whatever. And so we would do this all the time. It was very quiet. Like the women in our family didn't know. They didn't know Dick. You know, my grandfather caught, kept it from my grandmother and my and, and my aunts and everything. They didn't know nothing. Like they they had no idea what was going on. He kept, you know, he knew they didn't approve of it. Like the women, the of 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 bringing me into the fold. They didn't approve. So he he. He would kind of keep that part of our life, you know, um, secret. And and then we would just go once we were in the car and driving, we could talk about anything. You know, we talked about mob stuff all day, you know, about who's who, who's doing what, who, what happened here, who's doing that, where this money goes, who's guys got this, blah, blah. We'd laugh about this guy just took a big hit on a freaking sports game or something. And my grandpa was a layoff book, huge layoff book. So that's one of the things he didn't, he didn't book the bets. He just laid them off to Vegas. Yeah. So when people will book, you know, when had to balance their books before a game, they'd call him up. We had four phones going, he'd lay them off and boom. So technically he wasn't doing anything illegal. Um, but then he made a bunch of money doing it. But um, anyways, so over the next 10 years, you know, I, I, I drove him around a lot and was exposed to all these high level mafioso that were, um, that were his gumbadis, you know, childhood friends and stuff that he grew up with in the neighborhood there. These guys, um, uh, Tony Corrado, Vincent Mele, um, Jimmy Quasarano. Um, there's a couple other Tonys I'd like to say, um, Tony Jack and Billy Jack, but there's also Joe Toco, Tony Toco. Some people, I'm not going to say their names because they got kids who may or may not be involved, you know, and I don't want to put them on blast. But um, anyways, so... That's what happened. I, 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 well, Tony Jack, then I got in with Tony Jack alone. He was, and there's a list somewhere. It might have been Scott Bernstein did it, like the top 10 uh, American true crime, or top 10 American gangsters of all time. And Tony Jack alone is on that list, top 10, as the mm-hmm. one of the baddest, coldest killers, baddest mother ever. And I think he should be in the top, maybe he should be number one. Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, he definitely he, belongs up there. 
Yeah, I mean, even Jack Tokel should be number one, hands down, in my opinion. The guy was a boss for 39 years, died worth $100 million, a free man in his mansion, raised nine kids, managed the family like like a well-oiled machine, and only served 18 months in jail. I mean, only one only one rat in his tenure. I mean, it's just no murder convictions. These guys, you can't really get better than that. You can't rattle off um, a better uh, a curriculum vitae or, or resume than that. 39 years as the boss, you, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I think the people being lesser known, not having a bunch of convictions, that moves you up on the list, not down. It the should, list. yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's the key, right? Like the, the the fact that he was lesser known, the fact that he was able to do it and stay out of the limelight and over to manipulate the media. But the media, one of his guys got busted, and they say mafia bust, whatever. He would go to his high-powered friends and say, "You stop advertising with them, Detroit News, unless they get rid of that and stop." talking about us mm-hmm. he would get people to not put commercials on the on the local news he would make he would make people stop advertising on the local newspapers he had so much pull he got the, the detroit news to go on strike for a year because they tried wow. they, they they tried to the whole there was no paper for a year he, he made him go on strike the unions mm-hmm. so you don't you just don't f with this guy man if you and he had billionaires in his pocket judges in his pocket fred Feds in his pocket, FBI. I mean, he had feds in his pocket. You got to look, go to my YouTube channel and look up the search the Ritz Carlton hit and how they were able to uh, assassinate a guy who was under federal custody. I can't even tell you. You just won't believe how they did it. But they I had, definitely recommend checking out that video. It is a crazy story. Yeah, it's, it's insane. You just you can't even you just can't even imagine until you. Re- it's like this can't be real, but it was. And they were able to kill this this informant um, before he could testify or anything while he was under federal co- protection, while in the very hotel that the the entire mob was having an anniversary party downstairs in the ballroom for Tony Jackaloni's 40th anniversary. Upstairs, the FBI left the the, uh, the the rat alone for 10 minutes. Assassin came in and slit his throat and, and then left. And the next FBI crew came in and found him dead. And this is all while it was like Tony Jack did it just to be like out of spite. I'm not only going to kill this rat mother ever. I'm going to I'm going to be in the building while he's doing it. I'm going to be downstairs partying with my wife, having a dance and a drink with my wife. Well, that rat mother ever gets his crow and that's how they were cut that's what i'm saying these guys are not to be played with so tony jack you know he was a bad mother effer man and i didn't even learn how like a bad what a bad ass mother effer he was until after i went to prison he was always just kind of my uncle he was always kind of there i knew he's a badass i got in trouble my grandpa told me i was scabbing his poker games a couple times poker players and he got really mad at me and then talking for a year but he got me out a lot of shit man i'm telling you like i had no idea the juice that I, that Tony had and the fact or, or the juice that I had because I was with Tony. I got in a lot of stuff. I threatened to kill a made guy and freaking and Tony got me out of that. Now, I should have been killed for that. You know what I mean? But and I, I scabbed Tony Jackaloni's players, poker players. I took I, I, I from his game. He put me on the game to play to be security, to work security at his poker game. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I memorized the players. And when I see him at Brownies, well, I'm bouncing. I say, hey, I'm doing, I got a poker game. I'm only going to cut every third pot instead of every pot. So there'll be bigger payouts. You want to play my game? And they're like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. He stopped. They start playing his game. And a couple weeks later, they're like, yo, where have you been? He's like, oh, I'm playing freaking, you know, Alonzo's game. He's like, Alonzo's got a game? And then, and then he call, and then I and then I <laughs> then he calls me in and yells at me. Says stop. The next time he says I want you to cut out of that game. I'm like five, uh, five. He's like you owe me six. I'll wait. So he made me pay him uh, juice on the game. And I, you know, I didn't even have it. I spent some of it, so I had to go borrow some money from my boy, own a club, and give it to him. Like I had, like 
an hour. You got an hour to give me 6,000 bucks. And I'm like, I got like four. And he's like, well, you better get moving. So, and this is 22. So, so so I go, yeah, I know. And I went to my buddy, my buddy, Pat O'Brien, who owns Pat O'Brien's bar on 10 mile in Jefferson. And I just walked in his basement. He was there doing paperwork. And I said, I need to borrow a couple thousand bucks. No questions. I need it. It's life and death. And he goes, all right. He didn't even ask. All right. Open the safe. Give me two grand. And then the third time I did it, um, because I was broke and needed the money, um, my grandpa just called me down in the basement and said, you got to stop doing this, man. Tony's really mad. He's, he, he, I can't protect you. Mm-hmm. Stop doing it. It's very disrespectful for what you're doing. You're dis- you don't disrespect somebody like him. What the f- is wrong with you? So I stopped. And then I got in trouble with the, the Tony Zarelli, who was the underboss. I went and was shaking down some Polish deli owner who, ha- who I didn't know was already paying a Jeezy or protection money to one of his guys. So he calls me in and I go in there. And since I was kind of known to be with Tony Jack, he called Tony Jack in there. Frank Bomarito was in there. Um, Tony Zarelli's bodyguard. And I come walking in there, diddy bopping in there. Like, I don't know shit. I think I'm there to pick up dinner at his restaurant, Spaghetti Palace or whatever. And uh, they're all in there. And he says, what are you doing with this freaking Polak, man? You can't do this. I said, why can't I do this? I got to eat too. And he's like, well, you got to ask. I got to ask every time I freaking you know, make a move in the city. And like, yeah, yeah, that's how it works, stupid. And uh, and I was like, well, what the frick? How would I know? And he's like, you ask your Uncle Pete. Then he asks one of us or I ask Tony or whatever. And I, he said, one of these days. And I said, because he says, one of these, he's put his fist up. He's like, you can't beat everybody with these, Alonzo. I said, he says, one of these days, somebody comes with one of these, a gun. And I was known for being a badass with my fist. They all knew I was like the toughest kid around uh-huh. with my fist. They, just, they knew that. But he said, you can't beat everybody with these. Somebody will come with this. And I said, well, I got this too. I'm in a good shot. My dad's a gun dealer. That's what I said. My dad is a gun dealer. So I got a lot of these. I said, I'm a good freaking shot. So if they come for me with this, they better make sure they're a good shot and they get me. Because if they don't, I'm going to get them and I'm going to get whoever sent them. But the way I said it sounded like I was talking to him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I realized, I was like, oh, shit. I didn't mean to say it like that. I didn't mean it like that. When I looked over at Tony and Tony is kind of a taller, very stoic dude. And he's looking at me and he's grinning. He's smiling. Because I know what he's thinking. He's, he's like, dude. I know what he's saying. He knows me good, man. He, he, mm-hmm. he says, I know what he's thinking. That's the exact answer. I knew he was going to like, I knew that's that what he'd say. Like this crazy ass freaking kid. And that's what he, I, I suspected nothing less. And then he kind of chuckles and he says, Pazulapara, which means crazy gunner. He said, Pazulapara, come down. He's like, listen, it's a misunderstanding. He says, Tony, he didn't know any better. He's, you know, he don't know any better, man. Listen, no, no follow, no harm. Stop doing that. If you're going to freaking shake somebody down, you bring it to your uncle. Your uncle will run it by us. Da, da, da. That's it. Just don't run it in everybody. You know, none of these guys are paying us. They've been paying us for a long time. So just calm down, you know, whatever. But and he saved my ass. And by the way, that's the first conversation I'd had with him since I scabbed his poker players in like a year ago. So he finally saved my ass, stepped in and saved my ass. And then uh, anyways, so he, over the years, and he got sick towards the end, you know, and like was not that healthy and not doing that well. And I didn't see him much the last couple of years. No, I was really more of like a renegade on my own. And keep in mind, I was over the, the 10 years from age 20 to age 30, I dabbled in drugs. I, I like got addicted to pain pills and then that led to heroin, but not very long. And I maybe dabble in drugs for could be anywhere from two or three weeks to two or three months. But most of my 20s, I was clean, but then I'd have these like relapses and they'd last you know, a couple of months sometimes. And I'll, I mean, we're talking like three of them over, over 10 years. I had like three relapses. And it was like my best friend died. My best friend, Jason Battaglia, a little Italian kid I loved. I had a dream about him last night. Um, 
he uh i when he died it, it broke me man and i just i just started i started getting high i wanted the pills you know and i took some pills and that led to age but the ultimately the the final one was when i broke my ankle now i was at, believe it or not trying to play football uh, you probably know that story but i was played semi pro football when i was on the run in new york city and i did really well got highly real agent yada 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 got me up opportunity to go to a scouting combine nfl scouting combine it's like three weeks away i break my ankle my life dream is over it's over you know and um and i'm devastated so and they give me pain pills for the, for the pain they don't know mm-hmm. i'm an addict and that just leads me down a path to self-destruction about this time tony jackaloni dies so i before when tony was around all the like being with tony or kind of even associated with tony because all he, all he would do is send me to send orders or pick up money. But most of the time, if somebody owed money or wasn't paying up a Shylock loan or whatever, he'd send me to send a message. Most of the time, I just show up looking tough. I'm like, yo, Tony wants his money. I'm like, what do you mean? I owe so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, well, so-and-so works for so- Tony. And Tony, they went to Tony and Tony sends me. So you need to pay. Right now, we're going to find this money. I'm going to work with you here. You know, we're going to get the money, you know, and I get a percent. So I was like a bloodhound. I, they call me the bloodhound. And I did that. And I'd go to the track, the Hazel Park racetrack. And I, you know, like, you know, make sure everybody's paying their loans. I, everybody thought I was a freaking lunatic. But they all knew I was with Tony. And have, I didn't know that being associated with Tony because he's my uncle through marriage that it put so, had so much juice on me. Like I had a lot of, lot of people who were like really scared of me and thought I was like a high level dude. When in fact, I, I wasn't. I was just a freaking dumbass punk, you know? I like to fight and knock a guy out. You know, you go to the Hazel Park racetrack, right? There's 50 guys there, you know, a bunch of bookies, a bunch of Shylocks. They're all betting. Now, one guy hasn't paid his other bookie for a while. That bookie calls Tony and says, I got an issue with this guy. He's three weeks behind his VIG. He's blah, 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 blah. And Tony calls me and says, listen, you know, send him a message. I'm like, where am I going to find him? They give me his address. Blah, blah, blah. I eventually catch up with him and sometimes be at the track. I walk straight up to him and say, hey, man, Tony wants his money. And before the guy says another word, I'm just like, bam, right in front of like 50 guys. Wham! Just knock him out, blow his whole face out. Blow. I said, now the next time the guy comes, you won't see him coming. You got that? Get, get the freaking money. And all these freaking guys there are like, holy shit, man, that freaking Alonzo kid's a lunatic, you know? It's not yeah. like I was a lunatic, but they just like, he's not for any games, you know? Don't, yeah. don't play. He's not playing not, around. He's not playing around, right? And I've gotten and the There was tons of like stories floating around of all the fights and bar club fights and trash and, and broken jaws and guys I beat up and base, I baseball batted this freaking bar full of bikers one time. I mean, so all these sto- a lot of the rumors were exaggerated, you know, embellished and fe- you know everybody builds them up, you know. And they thought I took on a bar full of bikers when in fact I took on two bikers and another dude uh, in a in a little like bar one time. Um, who the guy told me to f off. I'm not paying, and I said that's. That's your final answer, huh? Because he was supposed to meet me there with 3000 bucks, And I came in there and he had two bikers with him. He's like, you know, he ain't paying nobody. He ain't paying you. He ain't paying nobody else. So that's your answer. I looked at the dude and he said, he nods. I said, okay. I went outside, grabbed an aluminum baseball bat, came in and started smashing them, you know? And uh, and that got, you know, the, the bartender who worked there knew a bunch of some of the wise guys and was telling them, this freaking guy came in here and just trashed up the place. He broke, broke these guys up, man, broke their ribs and their head, split their heads open. I'm like, yeah. So now all these freaking guys and all the guys who are kind of in the circle of the mob and around them or, or you know, who bet with them and they hear all these rumors. And so they think I'm super crazy. Which I guess it kind of was, but it was more of an act than anything. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't super crazy. And this is where it'll turn to the book. Like I was kind of a book reading nerd. You know, I like to read and I love fishing and hunting. And this, that's what I really love to do. But uh-huh. because, because I was half Sicilian, I felt like I had to overcompensate because I knew I couldn't be a made guy. And they, I thought those type of people or those people in my family looked down their nose at me. 
Like they were just like, he's the defetto, which means defective. means you're half the ceiling. You read my book, defetto. And mm -hmm. so, so I thought they looked at me like that. And, and, and everyone I ever asked later in life, did you look at me like that? They're like, never. They're like, you were a toko. I saw you as an equal. I saw you as one of us. I never thought of you as a half breed or nothing. Um, you're a little crazy, but I'm like, well, in my mind, I thought you looked at me like I was a freaking dirtbag, nothing because I was a half breed. You're like, never. In fact, most of the time, most of the people will say, to be honest with you, I just thought you were a toko. I didn't even know, you know, you weren't, you know, just to us, you were a toko and that had a lot of weight, but the, what your behavior is what impressed, or, you know, you know, we were impressed with your behavior. You weren't scared of shit. You handled your business and, um, you were the guy that scared everybody, you know, and, um, and because there wasn't a lot of tough guys in, in Detroit mob, there was there were some older guys that were getting older in their forties and fifties or kind of ex head cracking tough guys, but no young ones, none, like no, no young ones. And then some of the crews had their own like associates who were tough guys. They were Chaldeans or they were the street guys, black guys, whatever. But as far as blood, I was like the last, I was like the last Mohican of a, just an old school freaking of the old guy. school, you know, right. Italian dudes, exactly old school Italian dude, tough guy, and 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 the East Side, anyways. I don't know, like I said, because the West Side had their own crew too. I wasn't familiar with it very much, but um, anyway, so so Tony, you know, kind of was my umbrella for for years, and um, I was just always collecting for him, or running dice and poker games for him and some of his crews. I mean, I could go on all day. Forget that. I want to get it. So what happened is at the end when Tony was gone, I kind of lost his umbrella. Then I got busted with um, two kilos of heroin, which I ended up beating. But when that happened, uh, everybody ran for cover. Everybody I dealt with this ran for cover because they thought I was, I was ratting um, naturally. So when they raided my house, um, they found two kilos of heroin and then they didn't arrest me, which is, I don't know why. Well, I do know why the reason they didn't arrest me is because they, they, they were trying to flip me. Okay. And, and, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to flip. So they brought, they told me to come in and talk to them. And I came in and talked to them. And, and, um, I'm like, well, at first I said, do I need a lawyer to come in? And they're like, no, um, you just want to talk to you pending lab results. You know, you're not going to be under arrest. So I go in there and I knew they had a weak case. The case is really weak. They had no hand to hand by, they had no fingerprints on nothing. The dope was found in my girlfriend's house. Um, I could establish that I didn't even live there. Their informant was her brother, who was a crackhead. He was also a CI who had stolen money from the cops before. Um, and so his credibility was trashed. He was just crackhead, had been out of prison all his life. And I told him that. I said, your, your, your CI is a freaking crackhead. He's been in, he stole money from you guys. His credibility is worthless. He said, that dope's mine. What the frick mean? You know, no judge in a million years is going to freaking sentence me to you know, life in prison based on the evidence you got. You got no evidence. So just, just some crackhead saying that dope was mine. How do you know it wasn't his? How do you know whose it was? You got any hand-to-hand -hand buy or no? Anyways, so they didn't arrest me, but everybody in the family freaking ran for cover, um, like because I'm on the street the next day, and they knew I got my house raided because a kid who lived down the block from me is a young hustler. He he saw the raid and it got out really quickly. Within 24 hours, everyone's like, you know, Gunner got raided, and they and they took a Corvette out of the driveway and all this. Anyways, Word travels so, fast really fast so so everybody was like running for cover nobody would answer my calls now i can't make no money man i got a, i got a freaking two thousand dollar a week habit a new home i just bought my second home and and you know, i got a lifestyle man i got jet skis four-wheelers snowmobiles i got everything man you know i got all this beautiful toys and i got bills and i need money so i started and, and i couldn't make any money off the street with the people i worked with because everybody thought i was ratting you know what i'm saying 
They're like, this freaks no way. How's this guy walking in the street after he gets raided with two uh, two kilos of heroin? Like he shouldn't be on the street. He should be, you know, there's no record of it in there. He didn't post a bond. He didn't. It's like they did that on purpose. They they did it on purpose. They they didn't charge me, and then left me on the street just so it would look like I was I was ratting. So then you know they I would have act, some leverage to try to actually get you leverage to make me to flip right. And um, it didn't work. They, but they fought before they raided me. They followed me around in a helicopter, everything, just like movie Henry, you know, Henry Hill, just like that. For two days, they followed me. It was freaking crazy, man. I mean, it was crazy. They, they, I mean, it was. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it was certainly they were after me. They followed me from six mile in Gratiot all the way to an eighteen mile in Shaner. I took Shaner the whole way, and then when I got way out there, I'm like, shit, man, these are, they're on me. I pulled into some subdivision and like hid under the trees. It was sun, summer, you know. And, um, and, uh, this is when they bought, yeah, this is when they busted me with the, um, the heroin and I got under the trees and the freaking helicopter was right overhead, like super loud. The trees are blowing. They're like trying to figure out where I went. They couldn't see where I went. You know, I pulled into the subdivision real quick and got under some trees in front of some house and park. I did that a couple of times and the same thing happened both times. And I'm like, okay, so they're definitely following me. Why are they following me? And then on the third day is when the neighbor calls and says, tells my girl your house is getting raided so my girl calls me screaming crying what did you do what did you do i'm like what i do what are you talking about she's like the neighbor chris called and said there's a freaking bunch of feds in the house tearing up the house i'm like oh no they didn't find the the, the, the weed in my i had 39 pounds of weed in the garage i think they didn't go back there because of the dog and they also didn't um find thirty two thousand dollars in cash in the in the in the uh in the closet which was just under some towels it's wow. crazy yeah, I know. Man, that's crazy. You'd think they would have found it. You'd think. You'd think, but they didn't. I don't know. That's open. That just kind of look and like, oh, there's nothing there. It's just, it just it's, goes to show you, no matter what your job is, there are guys that are bad at their jobs, no matter what they right, do. Right, right. And so, well, after I needed that money. So the next day after the bus, I called one of my friends. I said, dude, I need a favor. He's like, what? I need you to go in my, he's like, you got to get somebody you trust to go and get that money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't have anyone. I didn't have anybody. It's like I, I got the like someone who was kind of the most trusting person I could think of at the time. So I drive around the corner. I can't drive in front of my house. It's under surveillance. I know that. So I so I drive to the next block over and I said, well, my house is back there. Jump the fence. Go through that back window. It's open. Go in the closet. There should be you know money in there. You know, put it in a, in a pillowcase and jump back out the window and you know don't let them see you from the street. Whatever. And I had a nice big privacy fence, so they could nobody they could nobody could see him coming from the back. He goes in there, finds the money. He comes back, throws me the freaking bag of money. He's like, there it is. I'm like, dude, this guy, I, I think I gave him like two G's. I'm like, here, man, it's two grand. Just being honest. Cause he could have just said, no, nah, wasn't there, there, man. Nothing there. No, thanks. For, you know, that, or he could have, if I was him, this is what I would have done. I would have went, found it. And then I would have stashed it like be, behind the garage or something. And then went back and said, no, nah, nothing there, bro. It sucks, man. And then as soon as I, he dropped me off, I would have went straight back there, dumped the fence and went and got the money. That's what yeah. I would have done. That's what I would have done. I don't care who it was. He could have been my best friend. Nah, my best friend. I wouldn't have done him. But if it was just like a guy, like this guy was kind of just an acquaintance. Everybody else was like, I don't want to talk to you, man. You know what I'm saying? They're thinking I'm flipping. So it was a $2,000 a week habit. I was gambling a little bit too, which was stupid. I got, I went to Vegas my first time in Vegas around about two years before this. And I won and I won like 15 grand. Then the second time I went, I won like nine grand. And I'm like, oh, this is easy, man. I love Vegas. And then I, went, then I just started going back and losing, 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 losing. So I lost 
couple hundred G's over two years, plus again, $2,000 a week habit. Um, and then my house and all these lifestyle. So I needed money. So what did I do? I did what gangsters do and, and just started robbing and stealing. You know, I already robbed every drug dealer I knew, you know what I'm saying? It's just, I robbed that drug dealer. I was, I was a career drug dealer robber. And I, you know, I kind of prey on the ones that I knew weren't going to be retaliatory or try to kill me after or whatever. Um, and those of them were way scared, way scareder than me than I was of them. And so, you know, I'd get them in graces with them and then pull a pistol out and rob them. Or I'd have somebody break into their house and rob them and whatever the case is at, by the end there, I'm like, I got nothing. So now I'm robbing banks. I'm robbing banks. Um, I'm robbing. I robbed a couple of big drug dealers at, around that time. I just remembered a funny ass story just yesterday. I completely forgot it. That song, the ghetto bird from ice cube made it, made me think of it. And um, I was robbing a drug dealer, but it turned out the drug dealer was a, it was a CI. They were setting me up oh. and they were setting me up with a half kilo of heroin. And I, and, and, and then I saw the cops coming. I got out and ran and um, I ended up getting out and running. This is a funny ass story. I got to run and I, then I get away, but he gets out and runs too. Cause he's acting like, you know, he, he's, he's acting like, yeah, he plays a part. Well, I call my, I run, like a jump a couple of fences, call my boy. I'm like, yo, here's my car. It's right there. Go get it. There's a freaking half kilo in the, in the trunk. Grab it, bro. Get it out of there now. So all the cops all dispersed looking for me. My boy pulls up and grabs a kilo out of the trunk. So I, and now they don't get me and they don't get the kilo. You know what I'm saying? And they would later arrest me and, and be like, yo, where'd the dope go? I'm like, what though? But the funny That's thing is a real about Keystone that, cop situation. But they, right? they're, well, again, they're not very good at their job. Wait till you hear the rest of the story though. I jump in the, I go in somebody's garage and go in the, jump in the backseat of the garage, right? A backseat of a car in a garage. Some dude freaking comes walking up and, and to get in his car and leave. And he's, in the, and he's like, I'm in the backseat. And he looks at me. He's like, what the frick is doing? What are you doing, bro? And I tell him the truth. I said, man, the cops are looking over me. He said, all right, man, come on, get in the front seat, man. We'll, we'll, let's go check it out. I'm like, so he drives me around and we go peeping out. I end up coming back to his house. He smokes a joint with me. We end up having dinner. We're hanging out. I like spent the whole afternoon with this dude that I don't even know. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. I got him to do a show about that. Anyways, so um, then I end up getting busted for um, bank robbery, armed robbery, extortion, weapons felony firearms kidnapping fleeing and looting and um there's so many charges there were 17 charges most of them are capital which is 20 to life to carry 20 to life and then i went away to prison so i go away to prison and um i say right away i don't want that life no more you know there's more to it there's a lot more to the story like i'm in the hole and for 17 months i was in the hole and at the end of the day i said you know, I don't want, I'm never going back to that life, regardless of what I do next. I'm not going back to that life. I mean, it was almost like, do I kill myself? I got 13 to 50 years in here. Is it even worth it? You know, I don't, I mean, my girl, my poor girl, I left her with the house and all the bills and she had perfect credit and she prided herself on that. After I was gone, she had to go bankrupt and that broke her, that broke her, that, you know, she waited six years and then that was the end of it. You know, she couldn't, she couldn't stick around. So I started reading a lot of books when I was in the hole in prison and I came to realize that these books aren't that good. Like they're not that great. These are great writers, Sidney Sheldon and and Tom Clancy and and John Grisham and on and on and on. But they're not that good. I could do better. So I started writing books in my mind, and I would spend months staring at the ceiling while I'm in the hole, uh, staring at the ceiling and and building these characters and these complex stories, plot driven stories. And um, and so I'd like finish one after like two months, you know, three months. And then I'd start my next one. I might read, I said, I want to do this again. And I start reading in that genre. Let's say like 
uh, well, the mafia genre one, I never did any research for because I didn't have to, but other books like um, sports scene drama, contemporary uh, romantic comedy drama. Uh, I, I did um, uh, a Vietnam era, uh, you know, Vietnam story, a uh, war story. Um, I did a, an action suspense, kind of like a Jason Bourne series book I've written. And anyways, um, but then when I decided to write, I didn't write the mob book until I was, it was, I think my seventh book. So I'd already oh. written a bunch of books, I, you know, and I was just like, you know what? I got this idea. Not by now I've been in prison for freaking, you know, five, six years, you know, and written like six books. And I like, yeah, I don't give a crack at this mafia story um, book. And I mean, and I built that book to be a king, which you've read for straight from my mind um, in my own personal experience that's it. There was never no, there was no research. I never read a mob book in my life. Um, I would only go on to read two mob books after I wrote it, which is Sammy the Bull and Jimmy Fracciano's book. But I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't do any research whatsoever. There was no Google in prison. There's no blogs and research and nothing. I didn't, back then I'm in prison. There's no access to none of that. I didn't know who Scott Bernstein was or none of these freaking people were. I just, I just created this story from my, in my mind and then built from my own life experiences um what i saw what i was around what i was exposed to the type of people the type of interactions the type of you know and all everything you see into be a king or hear see in your mind it was all just inspired by the things i was around and that's a pretty crazy world you read the books yeah i read i read both books and what's crazy is you know when i listen to your stories i could definitely see where where some of the uh you know, the concepts come from and definitely that it was built around that. Um, but the books, like it's a, a club, uh, a complicated, it's, it's a big world. You know, there's a lot more to it. It's just not one, two characters. You no. know, it's this uh, kind of sprawling international world that really goes into it. And it's very, very complex storytelling. Yeah. It's a very complex story. That's the thing with my, my book is, is, and not only is it complex in that regard where it's, it kind of spans time and geography, but the plot is the, the, the I'm a plot driven writer, you know, but also there's, they say, well, you're a plot driven writer or you're, or you're a character driven writer. And I say, you can be both, but most people would disagree until they read my book. Cause I think my character, I'm a very character driven storyteller, but the plot ultimately is the part that where I blow your mind. Every story that I write has a, a mind blowing plot twist, which you know what happens with Vani at the end of the book. And um, mm-hmm. we, won't, we won't talk about, but how it comes full circle. There's something that happens. And in, in literally in chapter one, um, old mob buff from New York makes reference to something that happened with his son, you know, years before to instill loyalty and fear into the men that work for him. That would 17 years later, that same story would come out in front of the wrong person and 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 then they would cause the entire story to collapse or the whole entire house of cards that was built over 17 years in one second would it would it would, it would end anyways so i had to create this world and every piece of the puzzle that i planted which is every chapter which is about 100 and some chapters was working towards that one moment when when you know they when when that Gino Salastro was telling Bonnie in, in, in this Caribbean uh, island, on this Caribbean island, in this casino that just built this huge casino called Greece. Well, it's an island they call Greece, and it's got all these like high roller resorts there based on Greek, Greek mythology. And they're all drunk celebrating their opening day. And um, the, the, this Gino guy's drinking in bolts. He's 
boasting about how he had to, um, you know, what something he did 17 years earlier to instill fear. And well, he didn't realize you don't, as the reader, don't make the connection until you do. And then you were like, holy crap. So, and there's a lot more to it. You know, there's a, with, with King and uh, Contessa, the the lead character, Contessa, the female lead, um, is a, she's a complex character and with a whole backstory of her own. And so there's, a, there's, yeah, I like think that my story is, I think the God, a lot of people compare my book to the Godfather and get it all the time. But frankly, I think my book's a lot more complex than the Godfather series, in my opinion. Well, so, so I want to say a couple things on that. And um, so I think you kind of nailed it on your description of uh, a plot driven writer versus a character driven, because I think it's two books and I would just tell anybody just get both because yeah, I made the mistake. I made the mistake yeah. and got one and then mm-hmm. you finish it and then you yeah. have to wait for the second one to come and yeah, you really need to it. get into it right away. So just order both books because you're going to need them. Um, but when you start off, it's definitely, I would have assumed this is a character-based, you know, you're a character-based writer. But then as the story unfolds, you really realize there's this complicated plot mm-hmm. that's been running in the back the whole time that you didn't right. realize. You're hearing the parts. Yeah. And then when it all starts to come together, it's uh, it was really impressive. And what I want to say, to be honest, is, you know, I liked a lot of your content. I watched your videos. I heard about the books. And I wanted to check them out. Uh, I mean, for one, I like to support what you're doing. But another thing was I've, you know, doing research for my show, I've done so much just research books. So you're reading all nonfiction, mm-hmm. you know, which is good. But I really wanted to try out some fiction. So I've read Mario Puzo. I've read a lot of that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go back to, you know, a novel. And for one, they're. And, and, you know, I read a lot of the reviews and stuff and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's good, but I mean, is it really about, that good? No, are you talking about my reviews? Yeah. Yeah. Like I yeah, see yeah. all the reviews. I hear they sound too good them. to be true. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I thought, well, yeah, maybe it's just his buddies. Maybe there's people trying to pump them up. No, no. The book is that good. It is good. And like I said, I've I've read Mario Puzo. I mean, that's kind of the top of the heap. And mm-hmm. I definitely put it up there with it, like the storytelling, the character development, the plot. It's uh. It is very, very good. And I'm not saying that I didn't want to interview you just to, I was a fan of the books and I'm like, these are great. I want to have him on um, because yeah. they, they were writ, written amazingly. And, and just to think that you wrote those basically from prison without having a writing background. Now it does make sense that you said it was like your seventh book because you could mm-hmm. tell because it's definitely well-written and it's definitely complex. Um Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 crazy that you would expect this to be from, you know, one of these big name writers that you've heard of that's been doing it forever and has been, you know, mm-hmm. educated and working it out to find out. Nope, it's a guy that's, you know, in prison and, you know, yeah. just has a natural talent. It, yeah. It's impressive. And they are amazing books. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. I, pre- I, I you know, I hear that pretty frequently, you know, and I appreciate it every time. And it's humbling. But um, I, I think that is the most remarkable part about my story. So if you got through all the babbling my first hour on the show or whatever, and you get to this, this point, the most remarkable part is you look at me, kind of look like a big meaty muscle head, old dago freaking tough guy, right? And then you read the books and you just like, you're just not expecting it. You're not expecting what you read to come from that. You know, like, there's no way that guy could write this. And then you look at the reviews and just like you think, you're like, and they can't be that good. These are just bullshit. He's got a bunch of like fans and followers are blowing them up. And then you read them and they're like, wow, this really are that good. And that's what I get every time. And I tell everybody, if, the, if you don't agree with the reviews, if you don't think they are that good and you don't love the story, I'll give your money back. I will 
personally refund your money. I'm like, here, man, tell me if you didn't love them, but you're not going to read them. If you read them in full, one or two. And again, I get it all the time. I bought one. I'm so freaking pissed right now that I don't have two. You know, I get it all the time. And I'm just like, just spend an extra dollar $20 and, and just get the second book. Cause you're going to regret it if you don't. And then everybody, what everybody typically does, they get to the end of the book and there's only a chapter or two or three left and they are five chapters left. They start slowing down. And they don't want to finish. And they're like, I don't, I don't, I'm like, I'm like, you finish it? I'm like, uh, I'm taking my time. I'm like, well, you don't want it then? He's like, no, I don't have to freaking into this. <laughs> I, I literally did the exact same thing reading it. So flew through the first book, ordered the second one, had to wait for it to come. Like I said, bad decision, just ordering both. Second book flew through the first half. And once I got to the first half, I'm like, hold on, let me double check. Is there a timeline? Is there, there's no other one? Okay. Let me pace uh-huh. myself because this yeah. is, this is it. And uh, yeah, I yeah. literally slowed down through the end of the story because I knew that it was coming to an end. Yeah, I know. It's sad. It's sad. I, I'm going to write a volume three and it's good too. The volume three of the story is really good. And it involves King's father and the kind of the, uh, it goes back in time a little bit. Um, the King's father, which we don't know much about it's from this story, but um, we just know he's murdered. And then, and who had, it kind of involves who murdered him. But let me ask you this. Do, do you, do, what do you think happened to King? Well, I, I I don't know. I don't want to get too into it because I feel like it'd be a spoiler for the yeah, book. Yeah, you have to tell me privately. Yeah, privately. Yeah, I, I don't we, want, we I, can talk about it off the record. No, I, because well, I, people, I have some thoughts. Um, it's fifty fifty. People, no, a lot of people don't get it right, and they get mad at me. I've had people mother f me. I mean, literally random strangers. You mother effer. What the frick? I had a girl at a gas station mother f me. She's like, I know who you are. You wrote that book. That I'm like, yeah, she's like, I got to the end. You mother. I'm like, what the frick? What, what? I had it somewhere. But Look, the- and I understand. I want to say this. And I, I would never take that approach. You're, you're a big dude. Uh, but I understand <laughs> where she's saying, because I think it. I'm like, oh, that's all right. <sighs> There's more to the story. There's a lot more to the story and it won't let you down. But in the meantime, if you like a good, big, romantic mafia tale story, I get here all the time. People are saying, you know, you're the, the mafia puzo of our generation. Um, and even when Sammy the Bull hired me or wanted me to write his podcast and stuff like this, and when I said I need 500 bucks an episode, they kind of didn't have the money at the time and like, well, I'll get back to me. But they told me flat out that, that Richie Miller and him and they it was his producer and they're like, um, we're told that you're the best mafia writer in the world. And it comes from like five different people. So we've started thinking like one guy mentioned it, but then like five more people said, you're the best at recreating that world, the world of the mafia. Some guy named Gunnar Lindblom. So he's like, I read your book. And he's like, they were like, holy shit, man. And he's like, you're the truth at this. I'm like, and that crazy part is, again, this is all, you know, a lot of it, my, you know, it's my imagination. I have very superpower imagination, but you know, you can't, you can't just recreate something from imagination without have like that, without having some intimate knowledge of the world, you know, it's, but I did good on the military tip, but that's because I read a ton of books. Like under my Vietnam book, when I wrote a book about Vietnam, um, I recreated that world to the point where guys who read the book who were in Vietnam, they're like, holy crap, dude, I can't believe you wrote. But I had read like 45 books, Vietnam books before I wrote it. So I kind of, Immersed my, my dad was a Vietnam vet. I'd definitely like to to, to check that out. Um, especially yeah. now being a fan of your writing style. Uh, I definitely want to check that out. Well, uh, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time and I, I kind of wanted to wrap this up, but I do want a, a couple quick questions before we go. Um, so as a fan of the book, and, and I know I keep saying that, but uh, it's they are legitimately that good. So I, I feel like this belongs 
possibly a movie. Uh, I think it also could make a really great series because they're series. doing great things with dramatic series nowadays too. Yeah, especially when you're talking about you know telling some of the you know back in the day stories. Just because there's so much to it, I feel like yeah. it, it could be a great dramatic type series stuff too. Um, and this is something we kind of cover on our show a lot. So I want to ask you, who would you see like in a dream situation? Where was your pick playing? Who would you want to cast as like your uh, king? Yeah, as the or main king? character. I put a lot. Of, I put a lot of thought into that. Um, I, 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 I would have to look at the the. To be perfectly honest, I've looked at. I don't think there's any American actors who could probably would be perfect, but I think there may be some Italian actors, you know, that could play um, young Italian. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think Jason Momoa a little bit could be king. I mean, a little bit. He, he's but, yeah. I don't think I like he that because has... he he's got the he's got the look and uh, he's yeah. a little bit ethnically ambiguous where I feel like yeah. he play you know exactly. an, an Italian dude slick his hair black back black hair slick back I just don't know if he's a good enough actor to do it um to be but the weird thing about King though honestly is he's he's there's not a ton of the I mean he he is not a dialogue driven character so what you what you derive from king is his actions so from watching what he does or what he, how, how he interacts with other people is how you kind of base your opinion on him so it's not a ton of dialogue i mean but you'd have to have some but it may be me him there's you just be like um i don't know i'd have to look at the list of young upcomings because you know he'd have to be young handsome tall dark and handsome i don't know do you have any ideas uh, I, I don't, well, only because my big problem is the, the young, you know, all the actors I think of are, have all would have aged out of the role. Yeah. You know? right. He, he could be, he's got to be about, here's the thing. He's got to be about 25. And the reason for 25, because at 25, you can play an 18 year old or you can pay a 35 year old. You see what I'm saying? Right. Mm-hmm. He's got to be around 24, 25, 26 years old with makeup and CG at the got to, that can make him look much younger or older because the book starts off. Um, well, the book starts off with him well the, the first chap couple of chapters is when he walks out of prison so he's like 30 uh he's 30 something but when but the story starts off from vani's perspective when it flashes back 14 years then he's only like king when they have to get a, another character to play of a young king unless they did cg maybe where he's only when he's 15 16 17 years old and then it, as he moved forward i guess you could get you could make makeup and stuff and make a kid guy look real young you know well, especially uh, the stuff they're doing nowadays with movie magic, you know, yeah, they're, they're doing CG, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah, you can make a guy like 15, you can make a guy like 16, 17 years old when he's when he's 25, 30, you know, whatever. So I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. I, I would have loved, you just, I, I, there's a lot of characters like, um, oh, I, I've talked to Armand DeSante about him playing uh, um, Don Falcone. He oh, likes that's good. the idea. He likes the idea of playing Don Falcone. Yeah, Armin Asante, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Great casting. He said, "You get it made." He's like, "You get it funded." He's like, "I'm there. Make sure I get that spot." He said. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to do that." But I mean, not, there's a lot of, you know, like I don't, I don't. There's, you know, who's um, just this a lot of. There's a lot of guys. There was this. There's this beautiful young Italian actress who who could who, the actress who plays Contessa has to be Italian because most of them you can't really fake and it's just a true it's Sicilian accent I don't think where because Contessa barely speaks in English you know right uh, so or she'd have to be really bilingual very smart you know but she's, remember she's here to study neurology 
at the University of Michigan. So she's here. She's going to be a brain doctor, brain surgeon. So she's got to be very smart. So, but I don't know, man. I, I, uh, I'm not sure who, but I guess I'll leave that to the casting director. <laughs> right. Well, I, I just wondered because I, I, I just figured a lot of times as you're writing this, if there was something you kind of pictured, you know, in in your mind. Um, uh, you know, there's a guy you're... I picked. Okay. I, I mean, to be honest with you, okay, I do. So, so, um, Garcia, what's his name? Is it is a uh, Andy Garcia? Is that the dark haired, real handsome guy from the Godfather Three or Three? Godfather? Yeah, mm-hmm. him. So he, in my mind, that was kind of king ish, something like that, but bigger, a little big, more muscular, like a something beefy like one. So yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I think with that, uh, I think Jason Momoa kind of checks all those boxes, you know? Because yeah, I think yeah. uh, he's got the size. Because Andy Garcia has definitely got the look. He's that. He's a handsome yeah. guy and all that. Yeah, he's too old though now, but he is an older guy, you know. He's too old. Well, um, and last thing on the book, I know it's about King. Vani's my favorite character in the book. That's cool. I, I like Vani is a bad mother effer. He was inspired by my best friend, Jason, who has oh, the same thanks. last name. Yeah, my best friend, Jason Battaglia. Vani's last name is Battaglia, and he was inspired by him. So same kind of disposition, same type of manner, same type of hothead, same type of everything. So, so. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, you want to go ahead and plug, uh, you know, all your social medias, plug all your stuff before? Sure. Thank you. So everybody just make sure to check out my YouTube channel, Gunner Detroit or Gunner Limbloom um, on YouTube. I also have uh, a new Instagram account because my other one was hacked and stolen. So it's the real Gunner Detroit. Um, it's like real underscore Gunner Detroit. Piece of crap. I got screwed. I, I think somebody stole my entire Instagram account and never got it back. So oh, it's, that's it's, brutal. I know. And not that I care. It's that big a deal. But anyway, on Facebook, I'm just my personal page is maxed out all the time. But you can follow me. I'm an author, Gunnar Allen Limbloom. Out the book, To Be a King, actually has its own page. And it's got like 5,000 people there that follow it. So check it out. I post sometimes excerpts and things like that. I got a new book coming out this year called Blindsight 2020. It's a political thriller. I won't let you down. It'll be a very good book. It's kind of an end times political thriller. Um, and then um, a radio show, 910 Superstation, every Friday night on 7 to 9. You go to iHeartRadio and, and go to our, just you'll find it. Um, and that's about it. What else I got? Do I got anything else? Go oh, Art Thing Apparel. I own Art Thing Apparel. <laughs> ArtThingApparel.com right now. The, the website is down for the first time in five years because we're rebuilding everything to start this whole other, take it to another level process. So, but you can go there to OurThingApparel.com and click the gallery and open it up and you can see hundreds and hundreds of pictures of fans wearing the, our gear our stuff we sell tracksuits we sell jackets we sell hats hoodies double bags everything and they're really slick because they're based on like you can pick your city so if you're from cleveland you put cleveland our thing if you're from detroit you pick detroit from miami you pick miami you pick new york pick new york so we have stuff like right behind me is a is a there's a jacket that says Brooklyn on the back art thing. That's for Larry Mazza. So there's a, it's pretty cool. You get to customize it and, and, and embroiders. Our track suits are really freaking cool. They're custom made. They're really well made. They'll have your name on them. I'm wearing one night now. I know you can't see them, but, but I'm it's very sharp. It. Yeah, dude. I mean, they, and they, I know. And they're custom. And then on the back, they're, they're screened on the back. So you get, you know, you can't see, you can see it. So they're really nice, you know, and they're, and they're pretty affordable. They're 150 bucks, but dude, they're like, for the if you were, if you were trying to like buy a Nike tracksuit like this, I mean, it's 150 bucks and it's not even custom. There's nothing on the back. It just has a Nike swish on it. And it's like, you know, they're not even as nice as these. Yeah. So. And well, I mean, look, it's not expensive. If you get good quality because it'll last, you know, exactly. You get what, you dude, get what I got one that I've had for five years. It still looks new. So it's pretty nice. 
Um, and you also, I, I think I've seen you guys have on uh, iTunes now, right? The book is it, audio. Is it- yeah, the book is on audio, iTunes and Audible, and uh, and so the audio book for Volume One. And by the way, you know, I do I do two shows a week, uh, live shows a week. On Wednesday, I do Wise Guy Wednesday, where you just pick a topic and just talk about stuff. Hot topic of some kind. I can't remember what last night. Gang culture was last week's topic. But um, then the next day, then Thursday. Thanks, calling me one second. Um, on Thursday, we have um, me and Larry Mazza do um, the game plan, which is a sports handicapping. So where we kind of do a sports handicapping thing. Uh, if you don't, like, he, we, if you don't know what sports handicapping is, he basically tells you what to pick in terms of football picks, baseball picks, basketball picks, and I had an MMA guy on who does the UFC picks. So that's pretty cool. If you're into that thing, stop by. It's, it's every every um, Thursday at six thirty. The game plan and your YouTube channel. You got all the mob content for people that love that, but there's also all kinds of fishing and hunting, and you're very outdoorsy people. You people would think, oh, from Detroit, mob associate, it's got to be. Yeah. No, you're you're an outdoorsman. So oh, a lot I'm of totally spazzy. I, I am obsessed with hunting and fishing. That's my real life. That's what I do. Um, that's all I do when I'm not working. And so, man, I might go snowmobiling right now. It's pretty nice. I'm looking out there; it's snowing right now. But, but um, anyways, yeah. So you can there's a lot of those type of videos you can find on my channel. Uh, my and my personal videos. So just poke around in, in the playlist. And I I do one uh playlist called called Off the Cuffs, which is where me and my wife went and lived off the grids in the wilderness for six months. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're funny. They're really crazy. Crazy. Me and my wife, who was working for MIT at the time, went and lived in the wilderness for six months in a, in a log cabin on a private lake, miles and miles in the middle, no electricity, no running water, and just survived. And then I like videoed a lot of it and did some funny stuff. I got bit by a pine martin. I got I had to get $15,000 rabies shots. And it was just, it's just, they're funny. So if you like something like that, check them out. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, So everybody go check them out. This is Say Hello to the Bad Guy. Thanks for coming and thanks for listening. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Guy coming to last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. to be dad spent my birthdays in the trap we had to work with what we had she been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man plus my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam and i don't need a hundred friends i just want a hundred bands a hundred jugs a hundred scams hey hey so i don't money gram the hundred hams Said I don't money, grabbed a bunch of bands. And I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the pistols. Fuck a judge with a grudge, I'm blowing crud for my mental life. Ay. And I still keep it on me, run into your big homie, first you meet your dead homie. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Ay. The good guy coming last place. You smell that dope when I pass by. Ay. I let my money at a fast pace. Slim waist and her ass fake. Hey, and she in love with 
with the bad guy But bad bitches never act right She act up into that bag fly Did a turn around in one night Say hello to the bad guy The good guy come in last place You smell that dope when I pass by I let my money at a fast pace Say hello to the bad guy Good guy come in last place